What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 35, and we are doing the original Star Wars trilogy. As you can see, we're dressed up. I'm Han Solo. I'm Obi-Wan. You gotta hop over to the YouTube version to check out our outfits. It is worth it, I'm telling you. My Han Solo hair looks spot on. I did the uh, the Obi-Wan part on the side. Yeah, you look great. Thanks, I love man. The, the wardrobe. You look like a samurai slash Jedi warrior. I feel one. like I'm powerful. Yeah, you, you feel. You, yeah, you look <laughs> like you have broader so- shoulders than you actually do. I do have broad shoulders. You do because we have the same shoulders. So actually, mine are a little bigger. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> we're doing the Skywalker Saga, which features Episode Four, A New Hope, Episode Five, The Empire Strikes Back, and Episode Six, Return of the Jedi. And we're finally covering Star Wars, the original trilogy. Episodes 4, 5, and 6, probably the most requested topic we've gotten so far. And, of course, again, we had to dress up for this glorious occasion. We had to, we were saving it for you guys. Been saving this bacon, everybody. Oh, yeah. Now we're ready to let it out. And Star Wars is easily one of the greatest stories ever told, probably ever, in cinema. Uh, it's also the biggest film franchise of all time. All of its movies have combined for a total of $9.5 billion at just the box office. The franchise has also made tens of billions on toys, merchandise, clothing, video games, books, TV shows, and now the amusements and theme parks at Disney theme parks. The saga also helped create some of the most diehard fans you'll ever meet in any kind of media platform, media industry, creative industry. And we're beyond excited to finally talk about this saga and this epic created by George Lucas. It's going to be a good one, guys. Buckle up. Real quick, I want to shout out Dawson Jolikaware. I'm sorry we forgot you on the last Patreon shout out. He's a $10. He upped his ante from $5 to $10 on Patreon, so he's one of the top tier patrons now. You get your own personal shout out on this episode. Welcome to the club, pal. This episode of Raiders of Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order for any Star Wars posters you want or any posters in general. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel and share it as well as follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Share us with your movie friends and family. Let them know there's a show for them to watch and check out every Monday and Thursday. Leaving a five-star review is very helpful for us to get seen by new audio listeners on the podcast apps, especially those written reviews. Very helpful. So thank you so much to anyone who's done that. We also have a Patreon you can check out and support us monthly. Each tier of patrons gets specific perks like personalized videos sent to you and monthly shoutouts like we just did with Dawson. Yeah, Dawson. And of course, we're assuming you've seen these movies, so spoilers are going to be all over this episode. If you haven't seen the Star Wars series, you probably shouldn't be listening to this episode at all. <laughs> Let's get into it, man. So what makes the original trilogy of Star Wars so great? And I think the first thing I want to talk about is the practical effects. And... No one had ever really seen anything quite like this. I mean, 2001 Space Odyssey came out in 1968, and that was groundbreaking, obviously. But they still held back in terms of, like, they weren't having, they didn't have, like, space battles, laser beams, and, and blasters, and the scope of it in terms of interplanetary travel, intergalactic travel. So I think the practical effects of it, no one had ever seen anything on this scale, kind of like Metropolis in 1927. So I think when people went and saw this in theaters in 1977, the original Star Wars movie, they were probably taken aback and blown away by blown away by what they were seeing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Kubrick changed the game with 2001, but then Lucas elevated that to another level where yes, the effects are groundbreaking in 2001, but Lucas implemented intense action. Things are moving fast and there's multiple moving parts and shots and the sets change, the environments change, and 
it's a real testament to how incredible miniature work can really elevate the movie. Nowadays, we're so used to things looking so perfect, but this film was entirely made with miniatures, tiny sets, small spaceships. Everything was hand-built for this movie, and it's all in camera. Yeah, the sets are real. The, sh the ships are real. Everything's practical, in camera. Um, the Millennium Falcon, the, the, the Death Star, the Star Destroyers, the X-Wing fighters, the, the TIE fighters. Everything was captured in camera. Even the text crawl in the beginning of the film was filmed on camera, too. That's the power of filmmaking right there. It's very old-school filmmaking techniques. It's superimposing one film on top of another film um, to be able to put the spaceship in the background that they created for the, for the universe. And it's very simple, but if you do it well, it, it looks incredible. Yeah, and I'm not a huge fan of the special editions of these movies, which added in a bunch of CGI in the late 90s. And this is obviously was eventually George Lucas's vision of what he wanted the movies to look like, but it doesn't hold up as well as the practical effects. I mean, you put on Star Wars, any of the original trilogies, everything still looks great. Even the even some of the stuff he added was actually beneficial, like Cloud City with the windows actually worked out well to give depth to that, that city and everything. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the CGI, CGI they added in the late 90s just was not up to par with CGI today, which would have obviously been a little more timeless, but it just doesn't compare to the practical effects. Yeah, and even when it... And compared to the creatures when they're CGI and for the for the special editions, it's noticeably bad. And even so, I know stop motion is an an older technology, but the stop motion creatures look way better than the CGI ones do. Yeah, and it's virtually impossible to basically get versions of the original theatrical release unless you were like very lucky to get like those original Laserdisc uh, HD quality ones. But aside from that, you're pretty much gonna be stuck with these. Uh, special editions for the rest of time. Yeah, and I understand. I mean, he, this guy, it's his, it's his baby, you know what I mean? So he, he gets to change it um, however he wants. He has the right to do that. And this the things he put into it completed his vision. Like like the, a lot of the creatures, he said he wanted to put them in, but he just didn't have the technology to. But um, So you got to respect and let Lucas do what he wants to do. But I think one of the most noticeable things is um, the Jabba the Hutt special effect in the first film, A New Hope, where... Han has a, a scene with Jabba and he's rendered a CGI in this film and it does not look, doesn't look good at all. Does not look good at all anymore. And what happened was it's actually a deleted scene that they filmed for the for New Hope and they had an actor stand in for Jabba and this guy's dressed in real costume and everything. He plays Jabba in as as a man and then Lucas wanted to put superimposed a stop motion version of the slug like creature Jabba in post production and superimposed it over the actor but they uh, ran out of money so they weren't ever able to do that so um, Lucas just cut that scene from the film and then obviously after the success and with the 97 edition he decided I'm going to throw the scene back in and then I'll just CGI Jabba the Hutt and but I think that he still should have gone stop motion with it because the CGI looks awful. Yeah, but again, it is it is his baby, like you just said. This is his vision and what he wanted eventually, what he couldn't afford at the time, what he could obviously in the 90s. And um, again, the practical effects are just much better and they still hold up today. And the creativity of this entire franchise and this world is absurd. And Lucas, he pitched the idea and the story of Star Wars to studios with 21 illustrations that he had commissioned from artists Ralph McQuarrie, who was a, a great animator in, at the time, and uh, he beautifully depicted several scenes and environments from the franchise, which he used to pitch to studios. 
that is that makes perfect sense because there's no way to to pitch that in a meeting without the visuals because the studio execs, especially in the 70s, would be like, what the hell are you talking about, George? This it's kind of like Argo, the scene when uh, he's it's, trying yeah. to sell the movie. It's the same exact thing where they get the, like, the, the cards drawn up and everything. Yeah, 100%. Except these are really beautiful illustrations, and I highly suggest checking them out. We'll put some uh, JPEGs up, uh, up of them. During that pre-production stage of the film, though, Luke Skywalker's name was actually Luke Starkiller. The original title of the first film is actually called The Adventures of Starkiller, Episode 1. <laughs> Adventures of Starkiller. Yeah. That's still, that sounds a little too violent. A little too much, and yeah, I'm, I'm really glad he changed it. The name Star Wars is just, it's its a perfect name. Yeah, for the entire I, franchise. I can't think of a better name than Star Wars. It's so, it's its unique, and, and I'm sure when it came out, it was very exciting and refreshing. And it, it, it tells you what the story is about. It's about battles in, in, in the universe. Yeah, and also, yes, it's a sci-fi action epic, which, which you obviously get from the name because clearly it's going to take place in space. But it's also um, a space fantasy. You know, you can go either way. It's argued as a sci-fi, as a space fantasy. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, definitely both. Um, so, again, we get the Star Wars title, which is actually just the original title of A New Hope. A New Hope, its title wasn't changed until, I think, like 1981. When uh, the second when episode five came out, so mm-hmm. then they changed the title to A New Hope. So it was originally just called Star Wars, and like the original theatrical release, the text crawl was just called Star Wars. Yeah, he actually so he made the first film, and then when they were writing the second film, um, he was collaborating with the the screenwriter, and he had come up with ideas of how to tell Anakin Skywalker's backstory. And so once he came up with a a basic idea of Anakin's story, then he changed. Star Wars, the first film, to episode four, A New Hope, because he knew that he was going to make three chapters before that about Anakin's story. And, of course, Star Wars, you can't really talk about it in depth. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply without referencing its influences which it has many of of course almost every project has a ton of influences so lucas was heavily influenced by flash gordon the old serial tv show foundation it's a book series by isaac asimov uh which i actually have the first one it's really it's a tough read it's very very dense but uh it basically tells about intergalactic space travel and and different planetary systems at war Hmm. um dune by frank Herbert, which we're getting the movie of uh, 22 now. Yeah, the new version of the movie, which uh, Lynch made, David Lynch made a version in like 1990, which was not very good. Mm. Uh, but the new one's being directed by Denis Villeneuve, so that's going to be fantastic, and we can't wait to see that. And The Hidden Fortress, directed by Akira Kurosawa, is very influential for Star Wars in terms of the structure of the film. Uh, basically, the trio, the two like comedic guys, or the, or the men, and then the woman uh, accomplice. A Princess of Mars, which is the John Carter series, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also did Tarzan. Um, that is also a, a heavy influence on Star Wars, about a, a soldier who travels to Mars. Along with th- those influences, going back to Kurosawa, the idea of the Jedi was drawn mostly from a combination of various religions throughout uh, various cultures in the world, and also... It was heavily influenced by samurai and samurai history. Clearly and by your outfit. Look at that. Yeah, look, I look like a samurai. You couldn't tell. If it was all white, you'd look like a samurai. Jedis have very similar 
codes and morals to samurai. The actual emblem for the empire, actually, in the first film, is directly inspired by a family icon in one of Kurosawa's uh, samurai films. Very interesting. Yeah. And the Force, obviously, influenced by different religions and beliefs and spiritualities, but also very much the the voice, which is used in Dune. And we're not. This is pretty much about it. We're going to talk about influence. We're not going to break this down of what was copied or what we people might think was stolen mm-hmm. or referenced. But we're just going to basically spend this entire episode praising Star Wars and obviously picking it apart a little bit. But we don't want to spend too much time on its influences and. It's not going to be like oh, that. Yeah. Plenty yeah, yeah. of interviews and, and YouTube videos. In, every filmmaker uses inspiration. You, you can find that, this stuff online. But I, I, that, yeah. I think that the Force is one of the main components to identifying what makes a Star Wars film so special and unique. The idea of this all-seeing, all-possessing Force that has some kind of grasp and control and influence on every being in the universe is just a fascinating idea. No, well, I, I agree with you too because that's something that we're all looking for in life and we all assume or that's something that we all maybe want to cling to or think about at times where are we all connected somehow or is there some sort of energy that connects human beings with, with nature or with the cosmos? And I mean, if you think about it, we are all connected. We're all the product of stardust. So we're all technically are connected. So is there some sort of energy which binds us all together? And can you access that? Can you understand that? Can you even can you feel that? So I think it's really relatable to questioning humanity, questioning existence, the entire concept of the Force. Obviously, visually, these films are completely stunning. Um, Editing-wise and sound design also are very important parts of film, and Star Wars set new ground with that too in, in terms of the sound mixing. Uh, uh, very effective editing. Also, I love the the campiness of their editing too, where Lucas will do fun dissolves and swipes and transitions, which mm. you won't really see in in films and cinema uh, very seldomly. Um, and also, we got to talk about John Williams' score. Oh yeah, the driving force of 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 the heart of the films is John Williams' score, and it's so iconic. And the themes he created for these films will resonate on for generations. Yeah, I don't think there's a single score in any in cinema ever that was more important to telling the story than it was to Star Wars because from from when you look at Star Wars straight up it's it's kind of a simple story. It's a a very familiar tale, it's like a fairy tale which we've heard a million times. Um but also in a very unique way, but it's probably the most iconic music in the history of cinema. Yeah, and it's the first thing that happens when you go when you watch this film. If you're in a theater or you're watching it on your TV at home, the first thing that happens is it, it, it goes from a black screen to the explosion of the orchestra, and then the Star Wars logo appears on screen in yellow font, and it's just it's in, in, invigorating and in very exciting and thrilling, and it, he just takes you over with his music. He makes reading a, a, the text of the opening very entertaining. Yeah, and every character has unique themes and... Um, John Williams has great depth as a composer. He's obviously a genius, probably the greatest film, film composer of all time. The The creativity of him matches, if not exceeds, that of George Lucas's Star Wars entire idea and story. He's not slowing down at all. I mean, the music for the last three have been just as good, and he's created even more iconic themes for the new characters. Like, I love Ray's theme. I love Kylo Ren's theme. So this guy just... He... All, he Every film he he works on, he finds a way to help elevate the story through music that in, in a way that no one else can. Life finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> Jurassic Park. There we go. 
I think uh, also one of the most important aspects of Star Wars movies are lightsabers. Yeah, <laughs> lightsabers are so cool. You can't think of a Star Wars movie without a lightsaber, and that's what I think was so disappointing about Rogue One. There were no lightsabers in it, except for the very end because we with talked Vader. About, yeah, in our episode of Everything Wrong with the Force Awakens, like where are the lightsaber battles. Yeah, how aren't there twenty minutes of lightsaber fights in each movie? When I go to a Star Wars movie, I want to see some lightsaber fights. That's part of the draw for me. And just the idea of these 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 weapons are it's so fun and original and unique, but also kind of seems like it's possible for the, someone to like create this uh, across the universe a thousand ages ago. And obviously, Lucas was very much inspired by samurai. The swords themselves are inspired by samurai swords, and the Jedi and and Sith actually fight with uh, samurai fighting techniques. That's why they, they fight a certain way. It's kind of a little goofy nowadays in modern context, but it's inspired by modern uh, by classic samurai sword fighting. And I think it was just a brilliant way where George Lucas is such a fan of these genres, and he found a way to, to mash together samurai epics with science fiction in such a fun way. Yeah, and samurai, yes, in swords, but also, um, to me... The lightsaber also brings to mind and harkens uh, King Arthur in Excalibur. And it's a very similar kind of story. Like Star Wars in general is basically this fairy tale. Um, it's this legend that we've heard so many times and every culture has told the story of this, this knight that saves a princess and destroys a castle. And similar to King Arthur, and it's about the sword represents or the lightsaber represents nobility um, it represents character, and it's drawn to people of strong moral character and ethics. The sword's magical. Yeah, and for example, I mean, obviously, just to jump quick ahead, when in um, The Force Awakens, the lightsaber swings past Kylo Ren when he's trying to force pull it and goes straight to Rey because, again, like Excalibur, the lightsaber um, is attracted to strong character and nobility and respect. Well, I mean, I would just say that happened because Rey is, is just as powerful as Kylo. Well, we won't get into Not that. Not that the, the saber had to do with it. Oh, I, I disagree because it's a very special lightsaber. Well, you're right, actually. It's Luke's saber. It's Luke's okay, saber, I think yeah. you might have. So Luke's saber is different than... I'm not saying every lightsaber is like this. You're I mean, right. Like Luke's You know what? Saber. I was not thinking about the Force. You, My mistake. You better keep this whole thing in to show that I was right. I'm not a Jedi Master. <laughs> I'm a knight in training. I'm an, a trainee. <laughs> you're still on mopping duties. <laughs> <laughs> you're like a janitor for the Jedi. <laughs> but I think... Uh, for me, the lightsabers have always been probably the biggest draw for Star Wars movies. They're just so cool, and I wish I could be in a lightsaber battle myself. Yeah, I mean, every kid has fantasized about that. I'm sure a lot of adults still do. I mean, I sometimes still do. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and um, also what makes the lightsabers so great is, and iconic because you never seen anything like it before at the time. And the way they, they captured the lightsabers is they originally tried to use these sabers that were actually spinning light bars, and they had reflective tubes, and... Um, they were actually light glowing from them. Oh, and no then way. They would actually, when they were testing them, they were trying to shoot them. As soon as they made contact with another saber, they'd break. Yeah. And so they, w and then they went to just the sticks with reflective material. And um, every laser sword, every lightsaber is part real, part animated. And what they used was this technique called rotoscoping to actually basically animate on top of the of the sticks that they were wielding and the fake swords they were using. So they drew in the saber for every single frame. Basically, Every yeah. single frame of film. And, and the way they captured the sound for the lightsabers was they recorded a running 35-millimeter film projector, and they combined that with 
the audio they re- recorded with taking a stripped microphone and running it alongside a television, and they recorded the interference rebound from that effect, and they combined those two effects together to create create that iconic lightsaber sound. Ben Burks was the sound designer of Star Wars, and he created all these amazing sound effects we'd never heard before, and that really also, just like John Williams' score, brings so much characterization and, and emotion to all the action. Yeah, the ships, everything sounds so amazing, and he actually... Back then, synthesizers were beginning to be used uh, very heavily in, in, in production for audio and music, but he decided to record everything in person with actual instruments and, and machines and kind of engines, and he combined them all. So they're real, they're real life sounds that he combined together to make these effects. I think the final thing we have to talk about real quick, what defines Star Wars 2, is the characters. I mean, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the droids, C-3PO, R2-D2, Lando. Everybody is so iconic, so memorable, so well-acted. Their dialogue's fantastic. And you just grow to love these characters so quickly in the first film. The first time you watch these movies, you can't help but fall in love with them right away. Yeah, they're all very unique and they're all different, which is important for writing a story where they you can really identify the the differences in their voices and their personalities and the three leads couldn't be more different from each other and then you obviously have one of the greatest villains of all time invader who's your favorite character in all of star wars han solo come on kid good pick yeah he's the man i mean it's kind of a cliche choice but what yeah no it's a great pick i love i mean i got the hair right now so i mean you definitely got the hair my favorite is uh darth vader oh really yeah in this trilogy and this this little crew and this um, little group of adventurers, you know, we've seen it so many times too, like Lord of the Rings, the Three Musketeers of this one leader bringing ter- together these misfits or these characters who would never work together in a million years otherwise, but you put them together and, and you get this great dynamic of, of this, this team. I think that's why the original trilogy is still the best trilogy because... Especially with the the newest trilogy, you, the three leads don't get together until the third film when they're finally like together, working together, collaborating. But with the Star Wars original trilogy, they're at it halfway through the first film, and they're on screen together through all the films. And having them together, sharing the screen, interacting with each other on scenes, working together, it it makes you love them more, and you can see. You can see the relationships develop. It's not like they're happening in between movies. You know what I mean? And the characters are so memorable, and you you end up loving them like family. And I'm sure when the movies were coming out, every time you went to see another one, you just were so happy to see them. Just like for us with with Harry Potter, like you couldn't wait to see what happened, how how they were different, uh, what what they were gonna do and say next. And it's like a, a kinship with these characters people develop throughout the franchise. This episode of Raiders of Lost Podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped has been super generous. They sent us their performance packages, and they have some more stuff coming for us on the way. Thanks so much to our rep, Kyle, for hooking it up so much. Their luxury lawnmower groomer is the best cl- the best buzzers I've ever used in my life. I can't believe I've been using these CVS $10 clippers and just pulling hairs out of my my body forever. Grooming's a part of life, everybody. 
it's COVID, it's lockdown, and it's going to be winter. You got to start taking care of yourself or you don't want things to get out of hand. Don't want to look like Chewbacca. Yeah, you don't want to look like <laughs> Chewbacca. <laughs> and this isn't just for men. If you have a man in your life, if you got a boyfriend, siblings, brothers, a father, uncles, cousins, Manscaped is the perfect place to get gifts for the holiday season or birthdays, whatever. I'm telling you, any guy would be more than ecstatic to get a gift from Manscaped. Use Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your order and free shipping. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. Well, let's get into the film, starting with Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which is actually, again, originally called just Star Wars. A New Hope was added on a few years later. This was released in 1977, directed and written by George Lucas. The film stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Peter Mayhew, Alec Guinness, David Prowse, and James Earl Jones. It had a budget of $11 million. It had a global box office of $775 million, which today, after inflation, equals $3 billion. $3 billion. That's more than Avatar, guys. In 1977. That's, that means a lot of people saw this movie. A lot of people. Luke Skywalker joins forces with the Rebel Alliance to save the galaxy from the Emperor's world-destroying battle station, the Death Star. The fight for galaxy liberation from the evil clutches of the Emperor truly begins. This film also took away six Oscars at the Academy Awards in 1978, including Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Score. Do you know what it lost the Best Picture to? Um, 1978. Uh, Rocky? Annie, Annie Hall. Oh, Annie Hall? Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, Annie Hall is a really good movie. It's a good movie. I don't think it's Star Wars, though. And obviously, a big question with Star Wars A New Hope, Episode 4, is why did George Lucas start, apparently, at Chapter 4? Why did he start somewhere in the middle of this giant epic he, he was thinking about? And for him, I know I read so many interviews of, of the past, and it's fascinating to see these, these small bits of him talking about it. And he had this massive plan of this huge story, um, 9 to 12 chapters that he wanted to do. Starring a story in the middle had been done. It's been done before. I mean, Homer did it with the Iliad. So the strength of it is you get, you're right in the action. You're right in probably the most exciting parts of the story. And you you grab your audience real quick. And then you get to go backwards and forwards in time to show them even more of this giant universe with this huge idea that you have. I think that, and also I think that he started here because it had such a strong villain and such a strong protagonist. Whereas episode one, protagonist as a kid and the villain i mean i guess you can say the villain is darth maul but he doesn't even say anything so i think that and also i'm not sure he felt that he could film the first couple of episodes technology wise and so it was easier to film this a lot of it is uh on and locations and environments which he was able to build the sets of you can't build an underwater world in 1978 it's not going to happen so I think for those reasons, I think especially because you have Vader for the villain and then Luke for the lead. Yeah, and he originally wrote this as one giant script, but obviously it's too big to make into one movie. He had to break it up, so he decided to make the original Star Wars film was just the first act of this giant screenplay that he had written. And it's pretty nuts to go back and like read old interviews and watch interviews and see how no one really believed in this movie. No one really believed in the production, even the people on the production, the actors, the studio... Um, it was plagued with malfunctions, the sets, the props, uh, unmotivated actors. Sir Alec Guinness was like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, and so 
it was kind of a big surprise at how popular this was. And George Lucas himself even thought it was going to be a bomb. And he actually, when it was released, he went on vacation to Hawaii with his homie Steven Spielberg. And they actually came up with the idea of Indiana Jones while they were on vacation in Hawaii. And then there's that infamous bet between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg where Lucas was making this film while Spielberg was making Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Lucas went to visit Spielberg's set one day. And he saw these sets that they had built in, and he was like, this movie's going to be the biggest movie ever. Star Wars is going to be a bomb. I don't know what I'm doing, Steven. And Spielberg was like, no, I think Star Wars is going to be the biggest hit ever. You should just trust what you're doing. And Lucas was still so down about comparing the two films where he made this offer to Spielberg as a way to maybe kind of save himself from going bankrupt, where he offered 2.5% of Star Wars' gross in exchange for 2.5% of Close Encounters domestic gross. And so Spielberg took the bet with him. So they traded 2.5% of each film. And then when Close Encounters came out, it was a huge hit. It made like $300 million back then. Very big hit, very big movie. But Star Wars, like you said, made $775 million. So it was a gigantic success that not even George Lucas saw coming. And... Factoring in Steven Spielberg's 2.5%, which George Lucas honored, he made Spielberg $40 million. And to this day, Spielberg still owns 2.5% of the original Star Wars films gross. Easy money. That's insane. Star Wars A New Hope starts with John Williams' loud score with the first text scroll we'll ever see in Star Wars. And again, they filmed the text scroll by placing two foot wide die cut yellow letters over six foot long black paper and passing the camera over the page. And the text crawl for the first film basically tells us that the Rebel Alliance has won a battle against the Empire, which they're massive underdogs against, and with, and, and with it they got the blueprints of the Death Star, the Empire's new battle station, and Princess Leia must deliver the blueprints to a secret Rebel base. Originally, George Lucas wanted it to be seven paragraphs with four sentences in each paragraph. Good luck with that. And then uh, his good buddy, Brian De Palma, the film director, eventually uh, wrote it down to what we have now. I think it's maybe like seven sentences in total. So he trimmed it down a lot. And Lucas opened Star Wars up. First scene of the film. This is what you're in for. You've never seen anything like this before. He opens it up in space with a giant Star Destroyer ship chasing a smaller ship in space with blasters and lasers shooting back and forth. It's amazing, and especially when you consider the sheer size of this destroyer, because first Leia's ship flies past screen, and obviously it's very big, but it's, it looks like a tiny on the screen. And then the Star Destroyer falls, and then Lucas filmed it in a really smart way, where rather than just filming the entire ship at once, he had the, sh the Star Destroyer slowly reveal itself on screen, and we're under the destroyer, and then the ship just keeps moving and moving and moving, and it just seems to be growing. And it shows you just the sheer size of this spaceship. It's like the size of an entire state. It never ends. Yeah. There's no end to the shot so of the ship. So that's what's so impressive about this, because, yeah, the ships in 2001 are so, so great, but just seeing how big the scale is in this universe was just mind-blowing. And A New Hope is... The most contained of the series in terms of being like a tight-knit story, like this could stand alone by itself as just one film. Because again, no one thought this would be a success. And at the time, franchises and sequels weren't really a thing. They weren't very successful. If people made sequels to films, um, and generally, especially in the sci-fi action genre, 
they were generally bombs or they just were kind of B-rated or just weren't as good as the original version of the movies. Exactly. And they actually even, the crew and producers actually fought with Lucas about creating a shot at the end of the film when Han Solo shoots away Darth Vader from from the, the run. And Vader's ship spins out of control away from the area and they get away. George Lucas had to fight with the producers to put that in because they're like, there's not going to be a sequel. Why do you need to put that in? He's, we can just say that he died. <laughs> and he's like, no, we need to put this in. I, we just have to. And so they, they finally agreed and allowed him to shoot that shot of his ship spinning. And then obviously the producers of this film had no intention of making another one. But still, Lucas, although he didn't say for sure he would, he still had a plan, you know what I mean? He was still kind of placing these uh, little hints that there could be a sequel. Yeah, I think the initial release, it was only in 32 theaters nationwide, which is very small. And then it ended up being in over like 1,100 theaters, which at the time in 1977 was all the theaters, basically. Well, what happened with that was most of the theaters around the country, they didn't want to show Star Wars. They thought it was going to be a big bomb, and they thought it was going to be a waste of money for them to, to have the projectors and buy the film and run the each screen with the Star Wars. But 20th Century Fox being one of the biggest studios, they had a lot of money behind them and they obviously released a lot of films every year. They threatened all of the stu- all of the theaters and said if you don't show Star Wars on your screens, you're not going to show this other film that we have coming out in a couple of months that's going to be a big hit. And so after that threat, all the theaters eventually accepted Star Wars and then started running it. Crazy, huh? Insane. And then again, A New Hope is basically that fairy tale story. It's very much a space odyssey, a space fairy tale. And it's an adventure in outer space. And we have a simple three-act story. We have, you know, we're introduced to the heroes and their quest. Save the princess, act two, from the castle. And then act three, destroy the castle and the villain. This film is a little different from the other two because in this film, there's just one plot. Uh, the, th- the trio are together. When they all get together, they stay together for the most part. Whereas the other films, they split up or there are a couple or three different plots going on at the same time, like Christopher Nolan-esque. And like multiple climaxes. Yeah, multiple storylines happening at the same time. Whereas this one, it's just pretty much one storyline happening. So it's a much simpler story. He kicks it off right away with just, it's an action scene, right? After the sh- we see the ships, there's a huge laser gunfight. that The best ne- marksmanship you'll ever see from Starship, yeah, they, Star Troopers. They t- Stormtroopers. They, t- they take out a squadron and no problem. And you never see them shoot another person again. Well, because they're not important characters. Stormtroopers <laughs> cannot hit important characters. No way. Re- Rebel nobodies, they can take them out one by one. Oh, hell no. And it's, it's a great way to open it because it, it's high in action. It's intense. It's very fast. Uh, it's very thrilling. So I think it was a very smart way to open the film with the intense action scene. The first of the, the main characters we're introduced to, the human ones, is Leia. And Leia is like that early form of a princess or female character main character who's in an action adventure film and she's just as tough as the guys just as gritty if not tougher um you can argue ripley in alien was i'm sure she was definitely one of the first female stars action stars but you can tell that they definitely got some inspiration from leia even though it was a few years earlier yeah there's a point where leia takes the gun from i think luke and does a better job at shooting she's like give me that i'll do it yeah and leia's intelligent she's tough she's noble she's a natural leader uh, she's also humble and a loyal servant for her people. She's trying to find Obi-Wan on Tatooine. That's her goal. And it's being interrupted by Darth Vader, who we're also introduced to. Um, so we're inter- introduced to two heavyweight characters right away. I think Lucas, he could have done two things. He could have shown Luke first, 
or we could have shown this first. And I think it was smarter to show this first because right away we see the scope and the size of this world. And the possibility and the, the intensity of the action and yeah. the characters. And Darth Vader, the name has like simple origins. And Darth is a variation of Dark and Vader's a va- variation of Father. Um, James Earl Jones did the voice for Vader. Obviously, he didn't act inside the suit. That was David Prowse as Darth Vader in the costume. And James Earl Jones, he only did two hours of voice work for this film and got paid seventy four and got paid seventy five hundred dollars. So it's a pretty easy day for him. Yeah, not bad, not bad money. And Darth Vader's sinister and iconic breathing was recorded by sticking a microphone inside a scuba tank regulator. <laughs> That's funny. And crazily, Darth Vader only has twelve minutes of time on this film. He's hardly in this one, uh, but his presence is felt in every single scene. That's what's so powerful about Vader. Yeah, I think that's why it was good to show him right away. And then there's actually deleted scenes of Luke on Tatooine in his home. And he's watching the battle take place from the ground. He has these like special binoculars. And he's actually seeing the, the, the dogfight and the spaceship fight happening in the sky. That's pretty cool. And um, he's like with a couple of his friends in his neighborhood. And they're all watching the space battle. And George Lucas decided to cut it because he in- instead thought it would be better where you just go from the action scene and then we cut to Luke as a contrast to see the entire gigantic scope of this world. And there's space battles and laser guns and princesses and evil overlords. And then we cut to Tatooine as just a kid work- who works on a desert farm with his uncle and his aunt. Yeah. So it goes very big in scope and then very tiny in scope. And there's hardly any dialogue in legit the first 15, 17 minutes of this film. Well, human dialogue, because we're also introduced to R2-D2 and C-3PO. And their mission, which you just talked about, was to try to get the message to Obi-Wan Kenobi because Leia got captured by Darth Vader. This mission, which uh, R2-D2 is much more inclined to complete than 3PO, who's just kind of always just looking out for his own survival and his own protection. Yeah, 3PO is always kind of just like on his own uh, and trying to stave his own neck off half the time. But these two provide great comic relief. And honestly, it was very bold and, and kind of a courageous idea to show eight minutes worth of these two droids wandering around the desert. Just them two in yeah. the desert, basically. It's insane. Yeah. But it works. And like you said, they're hilarious and... Lucas does a great job humanizing the droids in all of these movies, and especially these two, because these two are like the most iconic characters of all the droids, and they're hilarious, and they're kind of like those iconic old comedy duos from TV and film, <laughs> and they're always just bouncing off each other, and R2 was actually originally going to speak English, but it's much funnier to have him just being translated by 3PO. I think that the movie Wally was inspired by this sequence. And there's even a droid when they're inside that giant droid truck that gathers all the droids. There's a they show for a moment there's a droid that has like the same exact eyes as Wally. So I think maybe the filmmakers of Wally were really inspired by this sequence to create that entire film. I think you're hundred percent correct, bud. Yeah. And then we meet Luke and Luke just lives on a farm with his uncle and his aunt. A moisture farm. Yeah, a moisture farm where they're trying to suck as much moisture out of the desert as they can. So Luke is this young guy who just wants to get away. He's he's th- looking for adventure. He's seeking a change. And he just wants to explore. He wants something more than what he has. And he feels like he's being hindered by this farm. Owen's not his father. He's still a father figure to him. And... He's still following his his rules of uh, still staying on the farm another year before he can ever apply for flight school. 
there's something about Luke. There's there's some mystery in his past, and even he is curious about his past. And his uncle and aunt hint at things that we'll eventually find out. Like he has too much of his father in him. That line, and then his uncle says, "That's what I'm afraid of." So we know that there's something about Luke that's different than everyone else that he probably grew, grew up around. And like you said, he, he seeks more in life and he wants to do more. He wants to fly. He wants to be a pilot. Um, and throughout the franchise, Luke's main arc, besides all of his side adventures and everything, is basically becoming a Jedi Knight, like his father. He's a relatable character. He's a teenager who, you know, he feels like he's being held back and wants to do more with his life. And then there's that iconic shot. It's probably the best shot in all of Star Wars where... It's sunset on Tatooine, and he's outside of his house, and then he looks on, up onto the horizon, and then you see the twin, stu- the twin suns. At the sun- binary sunset. Yeah, the binary sunset. And it's a beautiful image. And the, the sunsets are actually a common theme in Star Wars where they could mean the idea of, of change. Several sunsets happen throughout the films, but for Luke especially... He's seeing the sunset right before his character and his life is going to change forever. And then if you fast forward to The Last Jedi, he, at the moment of his death near the end of the film, he's right in front of a sunset and he's watching the sunset. And this is a precursor to his next great change, which is going to be death. And so the, the use of sunsets can be seen throughout Star Wars to mean the idea of changing. Next up, we meet Obi-Wan Kenobi after R2-D2 runs away from the farm to try to get his message and complete his mission because R2-D2 is just a baller. He's the man. He, he's, you give him a mission, he does it. Yeah, man. <laughs> no complaints. He's all or nothing. <laughs> Straight up laser focused, this guy. <laughs> and um, they, have, they get uh, cornered by the sand people and uh, they're saved by Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's Ben Kenobi, who the message is about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, not that great of a fake name, Ben Kenobi. <laughs> I'm sure, he could have Johnson maybe. And he admitted it to he admitted to it right away. He's like, "Oh yeah, that's me, Obi Wan. That's me. Oh, yeah. I haven't gone by that name in so long. Not, <laughs> not that long. Like what, twenty years? Come on, guy. You're not that old." I'm very curious to see the Obi Wan series that Disney makes because it could center around Obi Wan's time in the desert, like keeping an eye on Luke as he grows up. Oh, I'm sure. And then going on missions or doing all sorts of crazy shit throughout those years. I think it's such a great um it has such great potential for a show. I think that's the most um enticed part of the extensions of the Star Wars franchise that I'm most inclined to watch, I think is the Obi-Wan show. Agreed. And Obi-Wan is just a classic mentor, father figure archetype for Luke Skywalker our knight. Played by Alec Guinness, who Sir. made Sir Alec Guinness. I'm sorry, He's who made bank off this movie. He negotiated for 2.25 percent. No, he did gross. It. He ended up making 80 million dollars by playing Obi Wan Kenobi. Are you kidding me? And yeah, and he. I think he only got like six million million of it while he was alive because he gets it in in um in payments. Yeah, yeah. but uh, 80 million has been totally paid out to his estate and his family. That is crazy because. There are accounts of him being on set being like, what the hell am I doing here? This is ridiculous. <laughs> like He had no faith in it, so I'm glad that he got paid. I mean, Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill, they weren't really that invested in it either. And there are stories of them, they, they even confessed, confessed that they were just goof off on set unless Alec Guinness was on set, then they'd act very professionally. But when Alec Guinness wasn't there, they'd just be goofing off the whole time. Yeah, it's understandable because I'm sure this was like a, a set where... 
the culture and the vibe and the mentality around the people on set was probably like, hey, whatever. It's just a, it's this is Star Wars. This is a mess of a movie. No one's gonna see this, so who cares? And unfortunately, while Luke is out getting R two D two and meeting up with old Ben, <laughs> they um he goes back to they go back to find the damage from stormtroopers in uh the imperial imperial army, and then they he realizes that his aunt and uncle have probably been attacked or are in danger too. So he runs back and he finds he finds they were burned alive outside the their little hut. Yeah, the the burnt up skeletons of his aunt and uncle are are actually very graphic, surprisingly graphic for a Star Wars movie. It's kind of unexpected. You forget about it. But it has to be because it needs to be the motivation for Luke to decide to go with Obi-Wan. It's the big catalyst for him leaving Tatooine. Yeah, and there's this great shot where when he finds the, his aunt, uncle's bodies and you would he immediately like looks away because he doesn't want to see it, but then he looks back and he stares at their bodies. He stares at their skeletons because, to me, when I watch that, Luke is searing this in his mind searing this as motivation to he wants revenge he wants vengeance of what's of what's happened he's going to go on this journey to try to stop what just happened to his family happening to other people yeah exactly fun fact about uncle owen he was actually played by joel edgerton in the prequels in the revenge of the sith when obi-wan drops off luke to um owen and his wife it's Joel Edgerton. No way. It's Uncle Owen. Oh, my God. I love Joel. He's the man. Yeah. Australian crazy. actor. You've seen a million things if you, don't, if you don't know him by name. Yeah, it's crazy. And so their next mission is to get to Alderaan to get the plans to Princess Leia. But they need a ship. So they go to that town where that cantina is. And this is one of the most iconic scenes in all of franchise of Star Wars where they meet Han Solo and Chewbacca. So the cantina was actually inspired by... Western films, which Lucas is a big fan of, in every Western, there's scenes inside of a saloon. And so for him, this was like the saloon of Star Wars, the cantina. It's got every kind of nefarious character, every kind of scoundrel you you could ever imagine. And people love it. You, we have that jazz kind of music, the fun band, the which I think George Lucas gets way too many shots of. He's th- this is like a full-on performance music video here. Fortunately, jazz music somehow like survives intergalactic travel. So if you're a jazz musician, you might be able to play somewhere else on a different planet. I bet uh, John Williams wrote that stuff. Oh, I bet I'm sure he, he did. started out as a jazz Absolutely. pianist, actually, yeah, which is probably why Prisoner of Azkaban is so jazzy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we meet Han Solo, who Han Solo, my favorite character, a lot of people's favorite character from Star Wars. Um, definition of cool and charisma. Um. As we as we hear so many times, he's a scoundrel in the universe. He's nothing but fun and relatable. He kind of seems like to me like the blueprint for a ton of Marvel characters in the MCU, just like constant sarcasm and one-liners. Um, <laughs> oh a, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Han Solo's backstory is he's a former Imperial cadet turned space smuggler and pirate, and he isn't interested in following orders, taking orders. Um, he's his own boss. In the beginning of the film, Han is a morally corrupt person. He's selfish. Um, he's only looking out for himself and what he can get from people and covering his debts. Yeah, and this was a star-making role for Harrison Ford. Obviously, this guy went on to he went he played Han Solo and then he played Indiana Jones. He's been the president. <laughs> he's been everything. The guy is just an animal. He's one of the best ever. Yeah, one of the greatest careers in cinema history. He's actually um, the most successful actor 
of all time because he gets percentages of all of his films. So he gets a cut of Indiana Jones. He would get a cut of Star Wars. That's nuts. So and, and he got paid like twenty million for the new Star Wars. So this guy is um, the most successful actor. This was actually kind of a, uh, an accident for Harrison Ford. Getting cast as Han Solo was kind of an accident for Harrison Ford. What had happened was he had spent some years acting, and it wasn't really working out. He wasn't getting any leads. He was just getting small roles. And so he was kind of taking a break from acting, and he got into carpentry. He still does carpentry, but he was working pretty much full-time as a carpenter for a long time. And Lucas needed work done in his house, so he hired Harrison Ford because... Harrison Ford had starred in American Graffiti, Lucas's first film. So they had they knew about each other, and so Lucas hired Ford to to build shelving in his house. And while Harrison Ford was building the shelves in 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 Lucas's house, Lucas was holding auditions for Star Wars. So he would have actors come into his home and audition for the roles of Luke, Leia, and Han. During a couple of these days, he he asked Harrison Ford, who was working there. As a carpenter, he was like, hey, can you read lines with these actors? Just, I, I don't have the actor for the other side. Can you just uh, read their sides with them? And so Harrison Ford would read scenes with these actors auditioning, and he would read the part of Han Solo. And after a couple of days, Lucas loved how he was reading Han Solo so much that he asked Harrison Ford if he wanted to be the role for the film. And so that's how Harrison Ford got cast as Han Solo. It's nuts. He got lucky, too, because George Lucas also offered this role to Al Pacino and Tom Selleck. Pacino turned it down because he didn't understand the script or the story. Mm. And I think Selleck just had uh, scheduling conflicts and probably also didn't believe in the, the production or, or what it could be, yeah. the potential. Um, Tom Selleck also had to turn down Indiana Jones because of uh, scheduling difficulties with his TV show. The career that guy could have had if he wasn't stuck in the TV show. Could have been Han Solo and Indiana Jones. For what, Magnum P.I.? Yeah, Magnum oh fucking P.I. Jesus, come on. At least he got to drive a Ferrari on the TV show. But no, he's, <laughs> he did fine. He was on NYPD Blue, right? I don't know. One of those cop shows for a long time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then we're also introduced to Chewbacca, who's uh, Han Solo's... Faithful companion, Wookiee, uh, also hysterical. Similar situation with R2-D2 where we don't understand Wookiee, but a lot of characters actually do. Han Solo speaks it, so they're kind of similar to R2-D2 and 3PO where 3PO is translating R2-D2's lines uh, or gist of what he's saying. Han Solo does that for Chewbacca. There's this funny story where the costume for, ha- for Chewbacca had to constantly be remade and fixed up because... In the second and third films, because whenever people came to visit on set and they would meet like the actors and the crew and stuff, everyone always gave Chewbacca a big hug. And so after so many people kept hugging him, they kept like taking off fur with him. (laughs) And so the Chewbacca costume had to constantly be reworked. And Chewbacca's growl actually is a blend of a bear, lion, walrus, and badger vocalizations. And Chewbacca is also confirmed to be roughly 200 years old when he first meets Luke, Obi-Wan, and the droids. Oh, wow. And this leads to the infamous scene, hotly debated, did Han shoot first? Or did Greedo? What do you think? The original theatrical version of this scene, you can't get a look at the guns. This is this was shot with just close-ups going back and forth with the explosion and... The way it looked, and I think a lot of people and hardcore fans believe that Han shot first, and they want to believe that and give him that like kind of scoundrel mentality. And obviously, the 1997 edition, the one that the special edition with the new effects and the new wide shot of that scene, 
Lucas purposely shows that Greedo shot first and Han shot second. Um, and a lot of people still, they'll even watch that, and you can even you can slow the frames down of the new version, and clearly Han shoots second. I think people just kind of want to believe what they want to at this point about that scene. But, you know, with stories and lore of fiction that's still discussed 50 years later, 45 years later, I mean, I think it's at this point you can take the special edition or not. If you go by theatrical version, then it's, it's up to your interpretation. But, I mean, I'm just going by what George Lucas says in the special edition. I think it's cooler if he shot. It is. It is cooler. Yeah, it I, makes I'm him more like of that. A, a badass pirate, and, and it actually gives him more of a redemption yeah. in terms of him, like his character arc. His character arc. He does redeem himself even more if he starts off as this this scumbag who would shoot someone just because, rather than self defense shooting. But Greedo gave him like the a warning. He's like, I've been waiting for this moment. It's yeah. like obviously Greedo's about to try and kill this guy. Yeah. So I I wouldn't blame Han if he shot first. I'm not saying that I don't think he did 100. percent But like it's not like Han's cool in my book either way. Yeah, 100. percent So our team escapes Tatooine. They light speed to Alderaan to find Leia, but they find it happens to be gone. It's been blown up because right before this, Darth Vader blows up. Princess Leia's home planet of Alderaan to get information out of her. And so they, they stumble upon what they think is an asteroid field, but there's no planet there where Alderaan's supposed to be. I just thought there'd be a little more mourning for Leia. She's kind of like <laughs> smiling and laughing like five minutes later. Yeah. But I mean, it is what it is. It's all good, man. Yeah, it's no, a movie. It's just fun. It's just fun to nitpick a little bit. And now this crew is assembled and they're, they're on their Millennium Falcon. They get away from the stormtroopers and the Imperial Army and they're on their way to save Princess Leia. Yeah, the size of this... The Death Star is unimaginably big because the destroyers are big. But as the Millennium Falcon is flying closer and closer to the Death Star, it just grows and grows. And you see that this thing is enormous. And when they pull into like that tiny, they pull into that station, the hangar is gigantic on its own. Or when they get pulled into that. Yeah, and it's just, the hangar is just like a tiny dot on the Death Star. That's how big this station is. It's impossibly big. Yeah. It has like, I think, 370,000 people on it. And obviously, this film does have some plot holes and some cons, and um, obviously one of them coming up here is when they're on the ship and they hide under the, the smuggler's den and underneath the floorboards, <laughs> and the scan- they have like the scanners go on the ship and they, they can't find them at all, which is a little, you know. And the scanners are just like guys. They're just. I thought like when Darth Vader's like have the scanners go on the ship, I thought they'd have like some sort of droid that can could find See human through, bodies. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, you, you can travel through space and you build this Death Star, but you can't have like a... Um, An x-ray? Yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't have any predator vision up in there. So no thermal vision goggles or anything like that. But it's great. And then they, they trick the stormtroopers and they get the uniforms, which yeah. have to be the most uncomfortable uniforms in army history in any kind of movie or, or film or fiction. They just don't look practical at all. They're not at all. And th- I mean, how can these guys... I don't blame them for being horrible shots because I would be a horrible shot if I were one of, the, one of those two. How could you even see through that thing? How can you breathe out of that thing? <laughs> The swast you must have after wearing that for just an hour. Just a side note. One of my favorite uh, notes about The Force Awakens is that scene when Rey's being held by Kylo Ren. When he leaves and then there's a stormtrooper that keeps guard on her. It's actually Daniel Craig in the stormtrooper outfit. And Daniel Craig was filming Bond at the studio next door in Pinewood. And he's a big fan, so we went on set, and they're like, hey, do you want to be the stormtrooper in this scene? 
And so he was like, yeah, sure. So it's the, the scene where Ray frees herself with the help of the stormtrooper, that's Daniel Craig. And if you listen to the scene, you can hear his. it's actually his voice. It's that James Bond voice. Yeah, it's great. I love the scene when they free the princess because they just go in there and light everybody Guns up. Guns blazing. And they just they shoot the the wall like crazy, and they shoot all the cameras and communications. And um, for the scene, Harrison Ford actually purposely didn't memorize his lines so that when he has this hilarious conversation with like the other radio people on the Death Star, that it sounded a little more genuine and like he was kind of improvising what he was saying. He's like, everything's fine here. Uh, how how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Luke, we're gonna have company. <laughs> And then that leads to they get Leia, and that leads to that famous trash compactor scene where the walls are closing in on them. And this is the first instance where we can see that R2-D2 can hack into computer systems and, and affect the ship in different ways, which is something that they end up using a lot in the Star Wars films. And you're also getting tastes of the chemistry or the anti-chemistry between all the characters, specifically with Leia and Han and their banter and... And Leia just kind of be, trying to be in charge of everybody because she's, again, she's like a natural born leader and she's been a leader of so many people. The funniest part about this scene is where R2-D2 eventually saves them and stops the walls from coming in. And they're all screaming and cheering like, you <laughs> saved us. And then 3 pills like, oh my God, they're dying. Listen to them screaming. They're being crushed right now. <laughs> That's so funny. And, the me- and while this is happening, Obi-Wan is sneaking through the ship. He has to shut down the transmitter to uh, lower the shields. And then... He ends up running into his old friend. Well, he senses him. He knows he's around because at specific points, he's pulling out his lightsaber. He's like, he's around here somewhere. Mm. And it's it's great when he finds Vader eventually, and Vader's just got his sword out, ready to go his lightsaber Yeah, he's just out. standing there with his sword just like hanging down. Because Vader's been sensing him somewhere, and, and when, they're looking through the Millennium, when they're looking through the Millennium Falcon the first time while it's docked, Vader says a line, I feel a presence that I haven't felt in... And he turns around real quick, so he, he senses Obi-Wan, and maybe immediately he doesn't recognize who it is, but he eventually knows who it is. What I really like about this film is, especially we see it with Vader, is for everyone else in the film, the idea of the Jedi and the Sith and the Force is considered as like a dead religion of like parlor tricks and it's all myth and legend and most people don't believe it han solo too he yeah han solo doesn't believe it it's like a, a fairy tale and even that commander questions darth vader and says like oh you're like your parlor tricks aren't going to help us out or something like that so he he knocks the force and then right after this vader immediately force chokes him and then us as an audience we see that the true power of the force and see it done before our eyes and we can see that it is a real thing and it's a, it's a great way to translate what you can do with the force and that it is real we also got a glimpse of it earlier too when uh luke obi-wan and solo are traveling to alderaan and luke is doing some training with the helmet and uh with the the little mini droid that shoots little beams at him and he can't block the shots until obi-wan has him put the mask on so he can't see it all and he asks he tells him to use the force and he deflects all three bullets or all three lasers with it. So he uses the Force, and we get a glimpse there, right there, what the Force can do. And also the Jedi mind trick that Obi-Wan does on those uh, stormtroopers on the planet. These are not the droids you're looking for. These are not the droids we're looking for. These two guys draw their lightsabers. You're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? The first time you see this, it's really exciting. Yeah, and again, there are some cons to this movie. we got to remember, 
you gotta take them with a grain of salt because eleven million dollar budget, nineteen seventy seven. This production was plagued with all sorts of malfunctions and and errors, and it can lag for a bit. This movie, um, some sequences can draw a little long. Like for example, when when Hans, when, when Luke and Leia are running away together, or trying to escape stormtroopers, and they they come across that door behind them, and then the bridge that's gone, and they have like a seventeen minute shootout with the stormtroopers <laughs> on the floor above. That's what it feels like until they eventually swing to safety. And then also the lightsaber fight between Obi-Wan and Vader, it's pretty basic. It's not really well choreographed, but again, this really had never been done before with these saber swords and you have this older actor with this other guy. And and the guy's wearing uh, lifts on his boots who's playing Vader. He's wearing a mask he can probably barely see through. He's got a giant cape on. And like you said, we have an older actor, so they're kind of limited with what they can do physically. And again, this is 1977. I'm sure it was awesome when you first saw it in theaters. Yeah. And I suggest right now, if, you, if you've if seen the movie a million times and that's one of your knocks on it is this lightsaber fight, I suggest watching the recreation of the Darth Vader versus Obi-Wan fight that the production channel Fix It and Post made called Scene 38 Reimagined. And it is insanely well done and cool as hell. And they superimpose new footage that they've filmed to accompany this scene, this lightsaber battle to make it modern and it's badass action and it's like seven minutes long it's so cool check it out did they deep fake obi-wan's face on it um or was no, it a they, different actor they had a different actor but they had uh him have a, a hood on when he's fighting Got so it. that you can't see his face and they cut it with the real scene they cut it with parts of the real scene oh, yeah. no so way it, it opens up with the real scene then cuts to this but they built the set with green screen and everything and they have the exact wardrobe it's, it's really well done have you ever seen it no, you've told me about it oh we'll watch it later it's so cool dude. all right the biggest turning point of the film when Luke and the others are, they reach the hangar and then Luke sees the battle. And then once he and Obi-Wan make eye contact, Obi-Wan decides to sacrifice himself and allow Vader to kill him. And he war- he threatens Vader. He says he'll be more powerful than, than he could ever imagine because only a Jedi Master can really disappear like that when they die. Because when you when you disappear like that, you become one with the Force and you're pretty much immortal. You become a part of the Force. Yeah. And uh, Vader didn't expect that Obi-Wan would be able to do that. Yeah, he even touches his robes like, where the hell did this guy go? Yeah. And he, um, Obi-Wan now becomes kind of like a voice in the back of Luke's head from time to time when he needs it most, like right here when he tells them to run so that they escape. There's another plot point right here for me that I have trouble with where they, it's pretty get, bad. they have the uh, Death Star plans um, and they know that there's a trace on the ship and even Leia says it like, hey guys, there's definitely a, we got away because they're tracing us. And they're going to track us to our next location. And they end up going to the Rebel uh, Force base anyways on that planet that they didn't want the Empire to know about. <laughs> and so they just lead them right back there, which whatever it is, what it is, got to finish the story, we're going to finish the movie. And so they bring the plans back. Um, and at the same time, obviously, the Death Star follows them and, and they find the planet, which they can't fire on yet because there's a moon or another planet in front of it. So they go into orbit around the moon. So, I mean, it's not like they have a, a, a planet destroyer weapon that they could just blow that up too. But, I mean, <laughs> we, we again, we got we to gotta finish, finish the movie. So another plot point will get past. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, never, I never thought of that. Why didn't they just be like, yo, just blow that up too. We'll blow them both up. <laughs> but now they have to wait for this moon or this planet to orbit so they could uh, shoot the uh, planet where the Rebel Force space is. Yeah, and then this gives the Rebels time to figure out that there is a weakness in a Death Star. It's that little tiny opening that leads like down to some chute that goes into the center of the ship. And 
we learned through the film Rogue One that there's a team that found this information and is told in that story in that film. I would say that Rogue One I liked, but I think that the best part of that film is the ending when we actually get to see Darth Vader fight. Right a, before he gets oh, right yeah. before his entrance into A New Hope. Yeah, it, best part yeah, of the movie. Right before A New Hope starts and Vader destroys that squadron of soldiers in that hallway. Because we never really got what is Vader's potential in a fight. Like, what can he really do? And the end of Rogue One is so badass. Yeah, it's it's so satisfying. And then it's just the, the room goes dark with smoke. And then you just see the lightsaber ignite, the red lightsaber. You're like, oh, my God. Lighting up everything. He's just force throwing people around. It's so Chopping badass. people in it's half. Amazing. It's great. It's, it's unbelievable. And I think, like, obviously they couldn't film anything like that back then. But it was so satisfying to see Vader go to town on a bunch of guys. But of course, this massive Death Star has a weakness, which is this perfectly straight shaft going straight to the reactor core, which there's no variation or bend or angle. It's got to be straight, man. But it needs to a perfect shot. And of course, we got Luke Skywalker, who's a great pilot. And we have this awesome, great dogfight, basically, between TIE fighters and X-Wings. And it's so cool to see. And it's a lot of fun. Lucas was actually inspired by dogfighters from World War II for these scenes and for the idea of these spaceships fighting like that. Yeah, he actually used World War II footage to work with the choreographing of all the fighting and all the the guns and and tanks and and explosions and everything. So he actually, that's why it looks so realistic. And the Death Star was built with a combination of matte paintings and miniatures. And there's this great shot where when Luke is going down into the tunnel... There's a great shot of a wide image of the death of of the Death Star, and we're approaching it. And what it actually is is it's a, a matte painting. It's just a painting of the Death Star. And Lucas takes the camera and he and he uh, pushes it in towards the matte painting, and then he cuts immediately to an identical image or close enough of the miniature. And then we follow the rest of the scene as a miniature. So we combined in one shot. He went from a matte painting into a miniature. It's pretty cool. And yes, the Rebel Forces, they find this weakness, and their plan is to attack the Death Star before the Death Star can blow the planet up. And obviously, Luke is going to fight the fight, and he's going to get up there and do what he can and try to save the Rebel Forces and save the planet. But of course, Han Solo, going to a scoundrel scoundrel ways, abandons the, the fight abandons everybody because in his words what's good what good is a reward if you can't spend it hey it's true (laughs) (laughs) so he abandons them and he abandons the fight and so luke is making this run through the tunnel but guess who's on his tail darth vader guy darth fucking vader kid darth vader kid (laughs) who is thwarted by the entrance of our hero han solo comes to basically semi save the day he shoots at one of the tie fighters who knocks darth vader out spinning into the into the universe, which we talked about earlier, which which Lucas put in to set up a sequel, and everyone's like, "What are you having this guy spin off? Just blow him up? Who cares?" Yeah, exactly, because they didn't think a sequel would happen. And then for for Luke, we get the moment of us seeing that he does have a connection to the Force, and he really does have the potential to become a Jedi Knight. We see this where he he takes off his GPS device, he shuts it down, and he goes manual because Obi Wan. Is speaking with him through the Force and telling him to trust the Force. And then Luke follows his orders and he fires a shot and it's a it's a bullseye. And so this is a moment of, of great change in, in Luke where he's understanding that he has a special ability with the Force. 
And I know there are a bunch of lists of actors with their kill counts, like Sylvester Stallone, Jovovich, and like Arnold and all these guys, Chow Yun-Fat. But I think, obviously, Luke Skywalker probably has the number one death total with, I think, just this blast is 370,000 people, they estimate, on Death Star. What about all this, like, the, the essential workers on the Death Star, like janitors, engineers, the cooks? Hey, man, they're working for those bad guys. Laundry people. They deserved it. Like, there's a lot of people on that ship that are just, like, you know, just getting by, they blue collar. They just needed a job, man. Yeah, they needed a job. <laughs> they took this contract on... They got families on other planets. It's like a six-month job, and they just got blown up for no reason. <laughs> they didn't do anything to anyone. It's a lot of people. Because if you factor in there's 370,000 people on the ship, it's going to be like maybe like 20,000 of them are innocent people. They had like a secret society of anti-empire, an, <laughs> yeah, anti, an anti-empire club. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they meet every Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great climax to a great film, and the Death Star blows up, and the heroes escape, and... We have that great ending where um, Chewie, um, Luke, and Han are honored by Leia with the uh, the medal ceremony. And it's a great ending. And it's, again, this film is, of all three and probably the entire franchise, it's the only one that kind of could be a standalone film. And Yeah, I mean, if they never made more Star Wars films, this one would still be fine. Star Wars changed movies more than, I think, anything in the last 50 years. Like, after this came out, people had a different idea of what a movie could be and what it could do. I mean, look, today, there would be no Marvel Cinematic Universe without Star Wars. Nothing. That's a fact. No way. Sci-fi changed forever. Space movies changed forever. Franchises changed forever. Now people try to make franchises like this and try to maximize on the potential of long-term storytelling. Yeah, because if you can make a movie about people with laser swords and spaceships and battles in, in, in the universe... Then you can make a movie about anything. You know this what I mean? This is just so much cooler. Yeah, this is pretty cool. And so, yeah, George Lucas absolutely changed the uh, the history of film with this movie. And I think A New Hope probably is my second favorite Star Wars movie. The next one's my favorite. Uh, it's very good. Again, we do have plot holes and, and some mistakes here and there. But again, 1977, $11 million budget, plagued with mistakes and malfunctions and, First and problems. And yeah. no backing and no support, no moral support for George Lucas. So... We just wait until the the next the next movie is his masterpiece of all all nine of these movies and all the ones he made. Yeah, hundred percent. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders fifteen at checkout for fifteen percent off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters and has been for years. They have been great to work with. They send us posters. They're sponsoring our current poster giveaway this week. You have until Friday to enter the contest when we announce our winner. So enter that contest. Get those free posters, guys. It's free. Why not get a Star Wars poster? It's free 99, guys. Free 99. (laughs) MoviePosters.com offers great options like original designs, framing, backlighting, canvas, and even plaque designs. Again, use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order at MoviePosters.com. Next up, we have Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Released May 21st in 1980 and directed by Irvin Kirshner. After the destruction of the Death Star, Luke starts his Jedi training with Master Yoda. The attack by the Imperial forces on the galaxy continues. Again, this film stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Peter Mayhew, and Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian. This film had a global box office of $550 million, which for inflation is a little over $2 billion, so again, a gigantic success as well for this film. 
with this film, George Lucas wasn't the director. Do you know why? No. What happened with the Directors Guild is they eliminated him from the guild itself because with the first film, there's a, there was this rule where they had to put the credits in before the film started. And Lucas was very adamant where he didn't want any credits at all. He just wanted the opening of Star Wars with the, with the, text, the text scroll and then the film begins. He didn't want to do any kind of credits, but it was, a, it was a, a rule to put the credits before the film, part of the Directors Guild rule. And so he still rejected it and said, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting any credits in before the film starts. And so the Directors Guild fined him $250,000, and they kicked him out of the guild. And, and so, so he, he couldn't direct? So he couldn't direct films anymore after this. So that's why for Empire and then Return of the Jedi... Lucas is not the actual director of the films. I'm sure he had a heavy hand in it all. He actually was extremely involved in the production. Still, obviously not the director, but he pretty much was the director. And it went so far as the director of the third film, Return. He said that he compared directing Star Wars to directing Hamlet with William Shakespeare looking over your shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Lucas was still very much involved in the actual making of these films. The cool thing about this is they made this movie, Episode 5, with the knowledge that Star Wars was the most successful movie ever made. And so obviously the budget increased to $18 million, so we got a bump in that. Um, Actually, do you know what happened with the budget? No, what happened? So More fun facts, I love it. So George Lucas, he obviously got a budget for the first film from, from Fox, but for this film, he didn't want to be involved with the studios anymore. He did because the studio was always controlling with the first film and they were always clashing. So with this film, he decided that he wanted to self-fund it himself. And so what he did was he put up several million dollars of his own money and then he took out a bank loan for the rest of the budget. And so he paid for Empire with his own money out of his own pocket rather than any other studio. So the studio just released it. So he, he was able to fund it himself. You know those studios were probably so upset because I'm sure after they saw the success, they were like, George, hey, man, we loved it. You did such a good job. No, no, no. They, I'm sure they were happy because they didn't have to invest and they still got paid. Yeah, it could have made so more money. So though. they still made, I mean, they were, they're still <laughs> distributing the film, so they're still making a big uh, part of the gross of the film. Well, thanks for being fun or sucking the fun out of the room. I am just being practical. <laughs> Just giving you f- spitting facts, man. <laughs> All right, and so yeah, the film. This film follows the destruction of the Death Star, and the Rebel forces are now hanging out on Hoth, which is basically like a frozen uh, ice planet. Um, and Darth Vader and the Empire obviously track them down eventually, but before that, Luke has a great little journey where he's attacked by a Wampa and taken to this ice cavern, this ice cave, and this has one of my maybe my favorite shot in the entire film, maybe in the entire trilogy where Luke is hanging upside down. The Womp is obviously like preparing him for a meal or something like that. And um, his saber is in the, in close to him, but it's out of arm's reach in the snow. And Lucas does this great shot where Luke's finally the first time we actually see him really using the force. Like obviously he was, using the force a little bit when he blows up the Death Mentally. Star. But, like, we're talking about actively trying to use the force here rather than just try to feel it and, and feel what it's like. And this is the first time he uses it, and George Lucas does this great shot where he pushes into the saber while it's shaking and jingling in the snow. And it's just a very simple shot, but to me, 
it kind of encapsulates the entire character of Luke and basically the journey of the franchise. And I, I love this shot, and it's beautiful. And he obviously uses it, and he slices off the arm, the arm of the Wampa, which to me, every time I see it, it's like that's a foreshadow for the end of the goddamn movie. Exactly. And there's actually three moments where Luke is upside down in this film. It's this moment in the cave, and then he's upside down when he's training with Yoda, and then he's up, he's hanging upside down underneath the Cloud City at the end of the film. So it's three instances of, be, of him um, being upside down. I love the opening of this film because it's so, it's so nice to see this frozen tundra environment. It's a really stark contrast from what we usually have come to expect to see in Star Wars movies. Usually there's a lot of deserts. And so it, I thought it was really refreshing to see this snow planet. It gave us a different feel. Obviously, the clothes are different. And he's riding that like crazy antelope lizard type creature, which is a lot of fun. Stop motion, but it looks great still. And also, a really interesting thing about this is they actually wrote this scene specifically to deal with the uh, the fact that Luke uh, Mark Hamill's face had become scarred from a car accident he was in. He he sustained serious facial injuries, and they actually had to rebuild his nose with part of his ear. So if you look at Mark Hamill, one of his nostrils is actually a lot smaller than the other nostril because of the surgery. And his face was scarred up, especially when they were filming this, we're going to film this movie. So they wrote this scene in the script where the Wampa slashes his face so that they can explain the scars on Mark Hamill's face. Yeah, another cool part about this movie is they throw us basically right into the war. You know, their their rebel force uh, gets discovered by the Empire and they're being attacked and they're forced to escape. But after, obviously, Han Solo saves Luke from the, the tundra in the wilderness... Which is a super fun time too, because Han again, <laughs> Han again is about to abandon everybody like he did before. But you know, he seems he feels like to himself that he's done at least a job there. And, but, you know, but also I would say his character is still different because in the first film he was abandoning them for the money, but with this film he's leaving because he needs to find a way to settle his debt with Jabba so he doesn't get killed. So he's kind of doing it more out of self-preservation than for greed this time. And also, he thinks there's nothing there for him really because he thinks there's a connection between him and Leia and he tries to confront her about it, but she she denies it and and he even asks her and tells her that he loves her, but she 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 refuses to admit it and uh, he, he decides to go because of that as well too. This opening of this film contains one of the best action set pieces of all of Star Wars, I think. And it's that walker battle with the giant walkers, the AT-ATs, as they're attacking the base. And the walkers are just this incredible stop-motion effect. I I still can't believe that George Lucas pulled the shots off so long ago because they still look good. Yeah, the all-terrain armored transports. They're iconic in in the franchise and they're cool because they look like animalistic. Obviously, they have like legs that they're walking on. They're kind of like they were based off of elephants, and they're really powerful. And they seem to be impenetrable. Like none of the firepower of the of the rebel forces have any effect on them at all. So they have to do like a practical effect where they use ropes to trip them up, and it's effective like that too. Yeah, and it's a great scene where where they wrap up the legs with the uh, harpoon. But I think. I don't know how Luke is filmless, but he filmed Luke um, gets hit and he has to bail on his ship and he crash lands in the snow and a walker is about to step on him, but he j- jumps out of the way. He steps on his ship, right? Yeah, steps on his ship and then he, he shoots like a, a harpoon gun up into the the belly of the walker, shoots up it like Batman, slips a grenade in there and then jumps out and then blows the whole walker up. And it's just an incredible sequence. And I was just like, 
I still can't believe that Lucas pulled these shots off. It's, it's Luke insane. fucking Skywalker, playa. It's crazy. Yeah, Luke's a badass man. This is when he's starting to show his skills. And so the rebellion has to flee this planet. They have to flee Hoth and get out of there. And we know they have to, especially because Darth Vader, he's taking it upon himself to get down there and handle business himself. And the cool thing about this film, especially compared to New Hope, is we get more Vader. So much more. He's more evil. He's more um, invigorated. He's got more energy. He's more motivated to to kill the rebel forces. He's, he's upset about the Death Star being exploded because... To everyone, Darth Vader seems like he's the leader, he's in charge, but really Darth Vader is just a puppet to the to the Emperor. Yeah, and this is when we finally get that transmission from the Emperor and we see that there's someone pulling the strings and that Vader is just a servant of this evil figure. And the Emperor is just so intimidating and such a brilliant character and Ironically, it was actually played by a woman in the original film. And it was an older woman wearing a mask of like this old face mask. And then they had chimpanzee eyes superimposed over her eyes. And so the transmission of the Emperor in the original film is actually much different. And after Lucas cast Ian McDermott for, to play at the Emperor in the third film, he liked it so much that he reshot these scenes with Ian McDiarmid. He uh, used special effects to put Ian McDiarmid into these scenes now for the, the new editions of the film. So now you see Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor in this film, when originally it was someone else entirely. The Rebel Forces have to flee the planet Hoth now, and so this is when we get the first real separation of the trio in this film. Um, so Luke... He takes his X-Wing, and from the advice and orders of Obi-Wan, Luke heads to Dagobah to seek out the Jedi Master Yoda for training to become a Jedi Knight, while Han, Leia, Chewie, and the droids escape the Empire ships for a time being. And they basically, what they do is they hide out on asteroids, and they wait for the Empire Starship Destroyer to just basically release all its trash, and they can float away with it, while they're also being hunted by the <laughs> infamous Boba Fett. <laughs> Boba Fett's on their tail, man. Better watch out. And then I think one of the strengths of this film that is such an elevation from the first film is the sets. So the first film, I mean, the sets are great, but they're still kind of small. Even like the ship sets, like that council room on the Death Star with Vader and his commanders is actually very small. They're limited, yeah. Yeah, very limited. Um, and they shot a lot on actual locations, so they weren't building gigantic sets. But for this film... Obviously, they have way more money to work with. And the sets on this are just enormous and so impressive and so well-made and beautifully constructed. And I really love the Dagobah set where um, Luke crash lands into this swamp. And we're introduced to this new major character in the entire franchise, Master Yoda, who is hilarious and crazy. And the first time you watch it, you can't possibly think that this little weird old thing is possibly a master Jedi teacher. Yeah, he's so goofy and belligerent. He's like going through all of Luke's shit. He's, he's super funny in and this. His voice is hysterical and he speaks oddly. He speaks he speaks like adjective, backwards. verb, yeah. subject. So he speaks kind of backwards and mixed up, which is obviously everybody knows how Yoda talks. Like, funny you are. Yeah. So it's just like this fun, unique character. And again, you can't possibly imagine that he's Yoda. He's the one until you actually find out he is Yoda. And he's actually been putting on a show 
for Luke testing his patience, seeing if if Luke is short tempered and and calm or mature, and he, he ends up um, concluding that he shouldn't train Luke because he's he's impatient and not ready. Yeah, and he asks Luke, "Why must you become a Jedi? Or why must you become Jedi? And why is Yoda so hesitant to train Luke?" And obviously, w- when you know about the entire story and you you know about episodes one through three and the origins of Darth Vader, my assumption is that. Yoda is hesitant to possibly create another Darth Vader. Yeah, he's like, not another Skywalker. Here we go. Here we go. These guys are nothing but trouble. These guys are crazy. A bunch of black sheep. (laughs) And uh, Yoda was actually partly inspired visually by Albert Einstein's face. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) But even though it's this small creature, it's practical. It's not animation, and they really made this little being, this little puppet, and... His face is very expressive. At times, he's full of concern. He's full of wisdom. He's full of humor, even hints of pride when he's watching Luke throughout his, his journey and his spiritual journey of the Force. Um, so Yoda is just such a fun character, and he's such a powerful figure in the entire Star Wars Empire, in the entire Star Wars franchise. Yeah, and I think the puppet works better than Yoda in the prequels, and that's why I'm glad that Ryan Johnson brought him back for Last Jedi when um, the real, like, puppeteered Yoda shows up in that film as well and it can be a little cheesy at times but I just think I like the tangibility of the in-person live action Yoda yeah but I love the interactions between Luke and Yoda and you know sometimes when I watch this I wish there were more conversations that we get of Yoda and Luke because their chemistry is hilarious and in a way Luke is a surrogate for the audience in terms of learning more about the force and learning some exposition about the past of the Jedi and the dark side and how Darth Vader came to be and is the dark side more powerful? How do I not get enticed by the dark side? How do I become more powerful? How do What are Jedi powers? What can you do? And Yoda explains that Jedi Jedis only use the Force for knowledge and defense, never for attacks, nothing more. Jedis also control their feelings and their emotions. So they aren't driven by emotion. They aren't driven by, by pain or anger or frustration. Um, they're they're calm and mature and and intelligent with how they go about things, and we we learn more about the dark side with the sequence with the cave, which is pretty much like I don't know I guess it's a window to the dark side of the force you could call it, because Luke is interacting with the force he is going to have to be enticed by the dark side yeah and so one of the main problems that every Jedi Jedi faces is the ability to to ignore the dark side and to shut it out and to stay in the light. And this cave is kind of a, a test of sorts to see how how the dark side can get a hold of you. And when you walk into this cave, you bring with with it your your fears and your insecurities. And so for Luke when he enters the cave, he sees his nemesis Darth Vader. He attacks Vader and decapitates him. He ends up seeing his own face in Darth Vader's mask. What do you think that means? I think it's obviously the familial tie between Luke and Vader and the potential of what Luke could become if he succumbs to the seduction of the dark side. Absolutely. That's what I think, too. I think that he he's afraid that he'll become evil like Vader. And then this also is an instance where the dark side is kind of tricking Luke here. By allowing Luke to defeat Darth Vader so quickly in this cave sequence, 
the dark side is making Luke believe that he can take on Darth Vader in real life. Which is an ulterior motive, which we'll get to later yeah. on. And so I think that's why Luke ends up abandoning the training. Yes, to save his friends, but I also think that because of the uh, the attack inside the cave where he beats Vader so quickly, that gave him co- false confidence that he could take on Vader in real life. Yeah, even arrogance or hubris. And yeah. we'll get to the friends because at the same time that Luke is training with Yoda, Han and Leia... And Chewie and the droids, they had to, once they escaped the Starship Destroyer in the Empire, they had to find somewhere to get help and refuel and, and fix up their ship. And so Han finds out that he's close to an old friend of his back in his old smuggling days uh, on this place called Cloud City. And his friend's name is Lando Calrissian, who, again, is another major player that we're introduced to in Empire Strikes Back. And Lando is a former smuggler like Han, the original owner of the Millennium Falcon. And uh, when we meet Lando, we hear before we before we meet Lando, we hear about him. He seems very mysterious to the audience. But um, he, we we already know we can't trust him fully. Yeah. So there's something about him, obviously, because you can't st- you still you can't trust Han fully. So how can you trust another smuggler fully? Um, when we first meet Lando, he seems upset to to finally see them but he's just messing with them and he gives Han a big hug and welcomes to them all to Cloud City of course with open arms. Um did you know that uh Billy D Williams actually auditioned for Han Solo for Star Wars a New Hope? I could see him being either one. He's yeah. he's great, he's very charismatic. George Lucas originally wrote Han first as an alien but then as a black man. So uh, Billy D was very much in contention for it. And Lando seems very much like Han. Yeah, except very for, similar. Yeah, except for like he's more successful, professional, and a little more polished. And I think he's much more charming than Han. Han's very much like more sarcastic and direct with Leia, but Lando is super charming and very, very gentlemanly towards her. Yeah, and Han's uh, way more scruffy looking. Yeah. Who are you calling scruffy looking? <laughs> but unfortunately, there's something up with Cloud City when our heroes are here in 3PO. Gets Some blown gets up. Blown up. Something we don't happens know, to him. We don't know what happened, but he just gets blown up and caught. There's this odd energy between Lando, Han, and Leia from here on out because Lando seems like he's keeping something from us. And Chewie saw something because Chewie found three um, PO's body and, and limbs and, and ends up putting begins to put them back together. And later on, eventually, um, Lando confronts them all and invites them over to like a lunch or uh, some refreshments. Yeah, an afternoon lunch. And guess who's waiting for them is Darth Vader. I think it's one of the best twists and shocks in the whole franchise is they enter this this uh, dining room and Darth Vader is just sitting at the head of the table waiting for them. Like, yeah. what's up, guys? Let's let's you, y'all hungry for lunch? <laughs> Bottomless <laughs> mimosas. We got chimichurris over here. chimichangas. Bottomless mimosas. <laughs> and obviously, first viewing, this is a betrayal of Lando on his friends and Han, especially in. You can't help but feel bad for Han and Leia because they trusted this man They and they thought he'd bring them safety and help them out. But from Lando's perspective, you can only imagine what Darth Vader was going to do to him if he didn't help Vader out. And Lando explains that Vader landed right after they came and he had no choice because obviously the Empire probably would have killed every person in Cloud City if he didn't help them. Yeah, he was just trying to protect his people, I think. And so it's understandable to, to empathize with what Lando was doing and why he did betray them. And because the Emperor wants Luke, and he, he marks him as this new enemy, and the Emperor wants to try to seduce him to the dark side. Well, no, that's not right. So the Emperor wants to destroy him, but 
Vader is the one who comes up with the suggestion of turning Luke because I think that's the first moment where oh, yeah, you're right. You're that's right. the first instance where Vader is showing this very subtle hints to goodness still being within him where he doesn't want to kill Luke immediately. He wants to try to spare Luke, save his life, and turn him to join him. So I think that's the first moment where Vader reveals the, those small those feelings that are hidden deep down within him. Thanks for the correction. So yeah, there's still some sort of humanity left inside of him. Mm-hmm. And um, Vader uses Han and Leia being tortured to basically um, entice and tempt Luke into a trap of coming to rescue him so that he can capture Luke for himself and turn him into the Emperor. And then there's the most famous, one of the most famous parts of the whole franchise when, when Han Solo gets frozen into carbonite. It's very intense and emotional. It's and a great scene. It is, and they, Lucas did a great job with it, and we've never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And obviously you love Han Solo. He's the man, and you've grown to love this guy, and he gets frozen in this goddamn carbonite. But before that, we have the iconic interaction where Leia kisses him and tells... Uh, Han Solo that she loves him and Han Solo just such a baller just goes I know (laughs) well I think that it's kind of like a reference to the opening of the film where they're bickering and Han is trying to get Leia to admit that she has feelings for him and she's refusing to and so I think in this moment here Harrison Ford came up with the idea of like, oh, what if I just say, yeah, I know. It seems more realistic to what Han Solo would say because he's so arrogant. Yeah, so I think he's referencing that scene earlier. And it's a powerful scene, and we, we see our best bud frozen in carbonite, and he's just frozen in this position and pose of screaming and agony and pain. Yeah, it looks like absolute pain. And he's placed in uh, Boba Fett's hands for delivery to Jabba the Hutt, and this is pretty much all Boba Fett does is, like, he's basically in the background of shots behind Darth Vader. He just, like, says a couple lines of dialogue, and he carries, or he has a droid carry uh, frozen <laughs> in carbonite Han Solo to his ship. Hot take, Boba Fett is overrated. The most overrated character in Star Wars, Captain Phasma is probably better than Boba Fett. He has like two lines. No, he might have four lines. And then he gets accidentally killed by Han in the next film by accident. <laughs> Han Solo accidentally hits his jetpack. I will give you this. He does like a cool outfit. He's a cool He's outfit. He's a cool outfit, yeah. But still, that dude doesn't do shit in these movies. <laughs> and so Luke, because his friends are being tortured, he wants to save them. And this is a problem for Obi-Wan and, and Yoda because they... Think they believe that Luke sh- should stay to finish his training so that he's ready to face Vader, um, and they try to get him to stay. But Luke, being Luke, has to go and rescue his friends. We get the first confrontation: Luke versus Vader. And this set they have is incredible. And I think the lighting here was made a certain way. It's, it's all the lighting in the in this set is uh, a combination of blues and reds. And I think that's a reference to the two sides of the Force. You have you have good and you have evil. Blue is good and, and the red is, is evil. And so I think that the lighting and the cinematography is literally alluding to the two sides of the force. Yeah, and the, the lightsaber fight in this movie is much better than the first one. It's, it's more choreographed. There's It's longer. Um, we have some more f- sophisticated movements of the lightsabers and the for- and the swords. They move through different environments. Yeah, and uh, there's a great scene where, where Luke falls down into that same chamber where Han Solo was frozen in carbonite and Vader thinks he has him and even chuckles and pushes the carbonite freezing button. But Luke jumps up and escapes and we get Vader showing his impression with, with uh, Luke like, oh, very impressive. Most impressive. <laughs> Obi-Wan has trained you well. And so the fight's legit, and they don't. Maybe Luke doesn't seem like a complete match for Vader, but he can hold his own against him for the time being. Yeah, but ultimately Vader shows that he's much more powerful in the Force. Like he's throwing all those things at him, and 
Luke can't do anything to defend himself, and then he gets thrown out the window, and then that leads to that that great moment where they're they're fighting on that catwalk, and then Vader slices Luke's hand off. And this is the most important part of probably the entire story and franchise of Star Wars, where where Vader reveals to Luke Skywalker that he's his father. And this, the first time you watch this, I'm sure you reacted and I reacted when we were kids when we saw this for the first time, the same way that Luke reacted. Even though it's just a movie, we can't possibly believe or fathom that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, just like Luke Skywalker can't believe it. He tells him, he screams it's impossible. He's screaming in agony and pain because he doesn't want to believe that the most evil person in the galaxy is his father. Yeah, I don't think there's a better twist in all of cinema. This is probably number one right here, and it's such an iconic moment. Oh, so actually it's a common misconception of him saying, he does not say, Luke, I am your father. It's an example of the Mandela effect where a large group of people believe something is true which didn't actually happen. Uh, this is pretty common in, in a lot of like advertising and, and labels for like cereal boxes, cartoons, like look at Looney Tunes and Looney Tunes or or uh, Fruit Loops, Fruit Loops. So there's a lot of cool examples of the Mandela effect. And he does not say, Luke, I am your father. I'm sorry if you have a t-shirt or, or a coffee mug that says that. He says, no, I am your father. Yeah, it's a great it's a great moment. But this is another moment where Vader spares him. Okay, okay. He's trying to save Luke's life. He doesn't want to kill Luke, but he will if he have to. And so he's, he's pretty much like pleading with Luke to join him and and rule the galaxy by his side. Because Darth has to kill Luke because the thing with the dark side and Sith Lords is the power of two. There could only be two. There can only be a master and an apprentice. There can't be three. So Darth Vader wants to spare Luke so that the both of them can kill the Emperor and they can rule the galaxy together. Because if Darth Vader doesn't kill Luke, that can't happen. If, if Darth Vader, if Luke doesn't join Darth Vader, Darth has to kill Luke because again, some reason with the dark side and, the, and that side of the force, there can only be two. That's really cool. Think about it. Yeah. That makes sense, too. Yeah, so he's trying to save his son. It's very subtle. He's not outright saying it, but he is say, trying to spare Luke's life. And Luke understands that he's going to be a dead man because he's missing an arm. Darth Vader's right here, and he knows Darth is going to kill him. So what Luke does is he jumps to what people think to be his death. And it, to me, it's debatable. Like, no I way. think that... Luke jumps because even if he's going to die, he'd rather die than be corrupted by the dark side of the Force. So he'd rather die than for his friends than let that happen and become corrupted by it and become a Darth Sith or an apprentice to the dark side. But I also think that, you know, when you watch the scene, Luke looks around for an escape. He even looks down right before he jumps. And I think that Luke right here is jumping... By trusting the Force, he doesn't know if he's maybe he's going to live, maybe he's going to die, but I think he's just giving himself up to the Force that he will survive, which he eventually does by sliding through that little compartment. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that Luke definitely felt that he was going to survive that fall somehow. Maybe he didn't know that there was going to be a vent there, but I think he knew for sure that the Force was going to get him out of there because Anakin does the same thing in Attack of the Clones where in that opening chase through the city, he jumps off Obi-Wan's ship and he falls down in the down the city, and then he lands on the bounty hunter ship because he knew he was gonna the force was gonna get him there. Yeah, so I think he used the force. I don't think he was really jumping to his death. Yeah, me either. Leads to the iconic shot where Luke is hanging at the bottom of Cloud City, and like I said, he's upside down just like he was two other times in the film. And this is where 
he understands that he has a connection. He doesn't know why, but he has a connection to Leia because he tries to call Obi-Wan, but Obi-Wan doesn't respond. But yeah, he calls on Leia and Leia hears him and understands him because we're starting to learn that there's some sort of connection between Luke and Leia now. And there's some sort of connection with Leia and the Force as well because that's the only way she can hear them. And uh, they turn their Millennium Falcon around her Landa, her Lando and, and Chewie, and they go pick up Luke, who's hanging upside down. And then this leads to probably one of the best cliffhangers in all of cinema, probably the best cliffhanger, where Luke and Leia are looking out the window, and they know that Han is still frozen, and Jabba the Hutt has him in his custody. It's a great ending, and I'm sure when you walked out of the theaters, if you saw this it, when it came out, you were like, I cannot wait for the next one. Yeah, so many unanswered questions with not even just is Han going to survive, but Luke just got his hand chopped off. He obviously got the robot hand uh, now. Um, Now we know that Darth Vader is his father. Like, what other connections are there? It's to the point where whenever we watch Star Wars trilogies, new ones, we always expect there to be all sorts of... There's going to be twists. There's going to be some sort of connection between characters who we didn't think were connected somehow. So, um, obviously, massive cliffhanger, and this is 19... And this is 1980, and you actually had to be patient and wait for the sequels to come out every couple of years. So uh, this is a massive cliffhanger for audiences for sure. And also the the new robotic hand that Luke has very much relates to Darth Vader, who has an all-robotic body. And it kind of shows that Luke, in a way, is becoming more like Vader, and the hand is just an, uh, one more notch in that belt. Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars movie. It's definitely the best of this trilogy. Um, it's probably, I think it is the best of the entire Star Wars franchise, even the even Rogue One and Solo included too. Um, it's hands down, if you're going to pick a masterpiece, it's this one and all around the filmmaking. The story's the best. Um, the characters are the best in this. The dialogue's the best. The action, Vader's so cool in this. I love every part of, of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, this movie is perfect, and I think the main difference between this and the first one is the pace. Uh, it, it moves along much faster. There are way more scenes. Um, the action is incredible. Sets are amazing, and it sets it up for the third film in such a brilliant way. And I think it's it's an unbelievable movie. Now for the final film in the franchise, the trilogy, Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Released in 1983, written by George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan, directed by Richard Marquand, stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Peter Mayhew, James Earl Jones, and Daniel Prowse. This film had a budget of $32.5 million and had a global box office of $475 million. Either the dark side or the light side of the force will prevail in an epic battle. Luke, alongside the Rebellion, faces the full force of the Emperor in efforts to liberate the Galactic Empire. Oh, and this film opens with a new Death Star is nearly finished and operational, and soon the Empire will become an unstoppable force because of it. And we have a, another great opening with Darth Vader speaking with the, uh, the commanders and operators there on this new station. And we learn that the station is still under construction and that the Emperor is not happy about it. And the, the, in this film, the way Vader speaks about the Emperor, it really makes him seem like he really is a servant to this man and that he really is the number two. And he even says that the Emperor is going to be there in person. And I think like as an audience member, even you're afraid to see him in person on screen. 
Yeah, and Vader, like you said, we learn more about him. We also get to see him getting his suit put on, and we see this burned in infigurements of his skin and his body and what really is underneath that suit. And, like, you almost didn't think that he was human at all, but even though he obviously is human, he does he still doesn't look human beneath the suit. Yeah. And it's even a little more terrifying. And compared to Episodes 4 and 5, the last... The Return of the Jedi is for sure, like, more spectacle and action than anything. It's still a great movie and storyline and everything, but it's a, it's a lot faster paced, more action. Um, like we talked about earlier, this film has more climaxes, more main events, more subcategories, subplots, and subplot main events all kind of happening at the same time towards the end. Yeah, this movie is basically a long action movie. And the main theme of Return of the Jedi is redemption and... You can even say that about the entire Star Wars saga, that redemption is a major theme of, of every single movie. And we learn eventually that almost any character in a Star Wars franchise can redeem themselves. Yeah, 100%. And I love the first act of this movie because it's kind of its like own little mini movie. Yeah, it's like this dual escape uh, mission. First, Lando and Leia rescue Han from the Carbonite. And we get a feel for Jabba the Hutt's home. It's it's a fun little world, and um, all the creature designs are fantastic. And, of course, we have a, a jazz band that we get so many shots of. Another jazz band. <laughs> when their plan is foiled, Luke shows up, and he's dressed in all black, and he's got a hooded robe. And the first shot of him is this great silhouette walking into the caverns, and then he force chokes those two guards. And you're like, Okay, Luke is a Jedi now. Let's go. He is legit. And if you look, he's wearing all black in this film. Luke's wardrobe changes from each film. In A New Hope, he's wearing white. And in Empire Strikes Back, he's wearing gray. And then in Return of the Jedi, he wears black. And the transitions of clothing transition to his growth and immaturity as a Jedi. White equals innocence and naivety. And gray is a transition and then black is maturity and power. And so he's finally reached full maturity as a Jedi. Just like Nina in Black Swan. Exactly. Which we talked about in a previous episode. And a lot of people think that he has black in this film because he's getting closer to the dark side in order to match up with Darth Vader. But I think it's more about his character transition than that. I think it's both because I think I think Lucas wants to tease the audience that maybe he's getting darker. He's getting these darker thoughts because, yes, he's maturing as a character. And he seems a lot more serious. He seems a lot more um, motivated and, and things like that. So it, Yeah, his character is very different. He's more He's calm. He's very controlled. He doesn't lose his temper anymore. He's not impatient anymore. He's a completely reserved person compared to his younger self. Yeah, so he's basically a drastically different character if you compare him to just the teenage kid who people called him a whiny brat in the first <laughs> movie, which I don't think he's that whiny. He's, I mean, he's, compared to Kylo Ren, he's not whiny at all. Yeah, Kylo Ren has just anger management written all over him. <laughs> Angsty teenager, my God. But Luke is just very powerful now, and it's great to see that he has a full grasp on his powers. Yeah, and actually the first shot of Luke in this film isn't him silhouetted in the hallway. It's when... Um, his hologram is projected on R2-D2 oh, yeah. because Luke is trying his save, way to save Han Solo by trading these droids for Han Solo. And um, eventually Luke says that if he denies this offer, then he'll face him. Then Jar J- Jabba the Hutt will face death. Yeah. I feel like the a younger Luke would have just gone, gone, in, gone in guns blazing, whereas this Luke is a, a full-on Jedi, so he understands that 
it's he doesn't attack first. He's trying to be he's trying to use diplomacy before violence. Exactly. He seems to have a good plan, but it doesn't work out when he steps upon that trap door and he's he falls into that cave with that giant monster, and it's an incredible creature, and it looks real. I don't know if it's stop motion or if it's just a giant puppet. It could be either one, but it looks fantastic. Well, Jabba the Hutt's actually a giant puppet, which I think took six people to puppeteer, and this massive costume or, or structure mm-hmm. of Jabba the Hutt that costs uh, half a million dollars to make, and uh, it weighed 2,000 pounds. So Jesus. that suit or that Jabba the Hutt prototype or whatever you want to call it weighed, half, weighed a ton. What was in that thing? I don't know, man. Maybe water? <laughs> and it's a great battle. He ends up killing it by slamming the door in its face, but... He gets captured and, and handcuffed as well. And this leads to the, the famous Starlock pit where um, they're pretty much kind of just like pirates on a ship. They're going to kick each um, each captive over the ledge into the, the mouth of this monster that li- lives inside this desert pit. But then we find out Luke had a plan all along. And R2-D2 spits out his lightsaber. It's, the, it's so amazing. And then he, he jumps off that plank and then... And catches his saber. He has this new green saber now. Dude, he is murking guys left and right. Legit, straight up. He's just slicing dudes left and right. He's slicing and dicing, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the saber fights were greatly improved in this. And then um, everyone's favorite anti-hero, Boba Fett, accidentally gets hit by by, uh, Han Solo in the jetpack. And he flies right into the Sarlacc monster. But he's so cool, man. He's like the best character in Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) And so Luke saves the day. He saves his bud, saves his friends, saves Leia in her metal bikini. He saves Han Solo. She actually hated the metal bikini. I would hate that thing too. It yeah. seems incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. You know what's ridiculous is uh, George Lucas made her not wear underwear or bra when she was filming her scenes. Not in this one. I mean, I'm talking in the about other ones. In, in the other ones because he said there's no underwear in space. <laughs> What? And so, so uh, Carrie Fisher ended up just taping, um, putting tape on her breasts so that you obviously can't see them because she's just wearing a thin white dress. And obviously, is that really the reason George Lucas you didn't come want on, her to wear bras? Come on, jeez, my God, guy, come on. At least it's 2020. <laughs> we go back to Dagobah and we hang out with Yoda some more, and uh, Yoda seems to be very weak and frail because Luke had to go back to finish his training, which he promised he would. Yeah. And we understand that Yoda looks like he's dying. And he reveals to Luke that in order to finish his training, he must confront Vader. And he confirms with Luke that Vader is really his father because he's Luke's kind of upset that Obi-Wan never told him. Why wouldn't he tell him? Yeah. And George Lucas originally didn't want to have Yoda confirm it, but... He had uh, several meetings with the child psychologist, and the psychologist recommended that if someone in this film doesn't outright confirm that Darth Vader is Luke's father, then children under the age of 12 are going to think it's a lie, and they won't believe it. And so Lucas was like, okay, if I, I don't want to lose half this audience here, so I need Yoda to basically solidify the fact that Vader is Luke's father. And just like Obi-Wan, when he died, when he passed, uh, Yoda dies in Return of the Jedi here. And he, like Obi-Wan, fades into existence and fades and becomes a part of the Force. And it's how Jedi become these Force spirits or Force ghosts, which we see from time to time. Always at the end of movies and when, <laughs> when th- happy things are happening. Um, and they they effectively cast their, their physical bodies 
into oblivion to allow themselves to basically go beyond death and transcend death and like I said, become one with the force. And Luke has this interaction with Obi-Wan where he he tells him that he feels betrayed that Obi-Wan didn't tell Luke the truth about Vader. And he also reveals that he doesn't think that he can kill his own father. And that's the main conflict with Luke because he feels that in order to save the galaxy, Vader has to die, but he doesn't feel as though he can kill him. And then the Rebellion finds out about the Death Star, and they find out they get they get new plans of this new Death Star to find a weakness, and they do find a new weakness on this on this new and improved supposedly Death Star. So instead of having one shaft, there are several shafts now. Well, and also the Death Star is not finished yet. Yeah, and they think that the Death Star is non-operational weaponry wise. But what they don't know is that this is all just a trap. By it's the a trap Emperor to get them into this very vulnerable situation where they think they have the upper hand. Yeah, so we end up understand, understanding that Palpatine, the Emperor, is pulling all the strings here, and everything that happens is according to how he foresaw it and how he planned it to go about. And then the Rebellion's plan is basically to go on this moon um, where there's an energy base, and they need to shut off this this transmitter, which will turn off the shield that's surrounding the Death Star. And then we have the infamous Ewoks, and a lot of people have mixed feelings about Ewoks. They're obviously, you know, meant for kids and family-friendly um, characters, and, you know, a lot of adults and hardcore fans, you'll hear that they think that this is a major weakness of Return of the Jedi, um, that they, maybe they don't look super realistic or anything like that. Um, I, I don't mind the Ewoks so much. Obviously, I thought they were more fun when I was a kid, but, you know, it's part of the franchise. It's something you kind of have to accept, even if you do see, like, a lot of wrinkles on the back of the costumes or their <laughs> legs when they bend their knees and stuff like that. But you just got to kind of accept it. It's it's part of it is what it is. I mean, like I said, I don't mind the Ewoks. Yeah, I don't mind them either. Um, and understandably, this is by far the most family-friendly of the films. And I think Lucas understood that young kids make up a large portion of the audience. So I think he was trying to find a way to make it more inclusive and fun for them. And so having these cute little critters involved in the story helped with that. And also, they actually originally wrote the Ewoks to be Wookiees. They added to they originally wrote it to be a civilization of Wookiees, like Chewbacca. But what happened was, as they discussed it, they decided that Chewbacca is always handling the most advanced technology. He can fly the ships, he can build anything, he can fix anything. So it wouldn't make sense that he comes from a culture that is still using rocks and sticks. And so they were like, okay, Wookiees would probably be way too advanced to be living so crudely. So they came up with this completely new kind of creature. Yeah. And before we get to the Ewoks, actually, we're on that planet and that moon. And we actually have, which is, I think it was shot in California. So it doesn't look that... Uh, the Redwoods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look that alien. But we have the awesome chase scene with those like hover bikes the riders yeah, yeah the riders which is super cool i th it's an amazing scene yeah and and when even still all these movies each one has things about where you're like how do they freaking film this how do they do this i can't believe it so i can tell you tell me please <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying you know vaguely but ambiguously but please do tell me so um in order to film especially the pov shots of the riders where they're flying through the woods they took a steady cam operator and they had him walk backwards through the forest, and they were recording with the camera, but they were recording one frame every couple of seconds. 
And so they had him walk backwards for forever, recording one frame every few seconds for a long time. And then they took that footage and they reversed it and they played it at 24 frames per second. And that sped up the speed of his movement by 5,000%. And it made it look like they were moving 120 miles per hour through the forest. That is cool. Super cool, huh? Yeah, thanks, man. No problem. Yeah, so many fun facts today. And then for all the other shots, it's like the same thing, but with dollying instead. Gotcha. But I think it's a really exhilarating action scene. And it also has a lot of moments that you've seen so many other chase scenes in action movies borrow from with like a villain and then an antagon- a protagonist and they're at odds and like one's trying to get the advantage of the other. And it's just a... Obviously, it doesn't look perfect, but I think if you if you invest yourself into the movie and just give yourself up to it, it's a phenomenal action sequence. Yeah, and so basically they're picked up by the Ewoks after this, and the Ewoks, they uh, they think 3PO is this new god, and they start praising him because he's this metal golden creature or robot, and um, they think that the humans, they're going to eat the humans in honor of their new god coming. And it's kind of fun. It's pretty funny, and it's actually funny. it does yeah. work for me at this point. I yeah, I laugh at it. I think it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and they they're, tie up Han. Uh, yeah, they tie them all up like they're about to roast them for dinner and to be the 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 meal at the banquet in honor of the three PO God. And um, we get another great glimpse of of Luke using the Force, and he floats three PO in the air. And this is like the first time we've seen um, Luke float it because we forgot to mention this in um, Empire Strikes Back where. Yoda, iconic scene where Yoda is trying to teach Luke how to use the force by floating the objects up and down and floating the rocks and lifting the rocks and his ship falls into that lake and Luke can't lift it up. It's too big for him. And then Yoda's trying to explain to him it doesn't matter how big the ship is. It's all about clearing your mind and, and becoming one with the force. The Matrix. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is legit. Clear my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and... um. Yoda, that's the most powerful form of the Force we've seen to that point, is Yoda lifting the starship, the X-Wing fighter, out of the lake. This giant ship. It's a great scene. It's so cool. Yeah. And so we finally get to see Luke use his powers in this way, lifting 3PO up. And it's so fun when we finally get to see, um, you know, exciting ways of the Force used. Mm -hmm. And then he... He talks 3PO and he explains, you can just trick them into thinking, into speaking like a god. And he, he... he tells 3PO to threaten them if any harm befalls the humans, and so then they're set free. Yeah, and so 3PO also tells them the story of, of the Galactic War and the Empire. And mm-hmm. the Ewoks, you know, they're, they're, they become, yo, let's go, let's do this. They join the forces, and they use their home alone woods techniques, the Vietnamese fighting techniques, to, to take out a bunch of the empi- Imperial robots and soldiers and their, their uh, PTPT walkers. And so it's like a... a Metaphor of technology versus, mate, versus nature. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's a metaphor for the Vietnam War too, where those local tribes and and soldiers use just non sophisticated methods to to win battles in in parts of the war. Mm-hmm. And so while all this is happening, there's two other storylines happening. Lando has taken control of the the fighter pilot unit, and they're attack. They're planning to attack the Death Star once the shield goes down, but then they get swarmed by the ambush. And we learned that it was all a trap. Yeah, as soon as they come in from light speed, boom, they blow up the big, the biggest ship they have. Yeah. And so while they're trying to fend off all the TIE fighters and destroyers, that's also cut along with Luke giving himself up to Vader. 
And then Luke's plan with this is he knows that there's still goodness within Vader, and he feels confident walking into this moment that he can convince Darth Vader to give himself up and join the light side. Yeah, and Luke tries this when he's just handcuffed and they're just walking along towards to get to the Emperor, and they're just they're just chatting, and Luke's trying to entice him. And at this point, Darth Vader says that he's too far gone, but he's also calling Luke's son. Yeah, which is odd. You haven't seen you haven't we haven't heard Darth Vader talk like this because Luke's been calling him father. Luke's been calling him father for a little bit, and um. I think this is a sign for Luke, and he realizes that there's still human left inside Darth Vader, and there's still hope to bring him back to humanity. Yeah, so I think it's yes. When he says son, that's very revealing. And also, he says specifically, it's too late for me. And what I think he's saying there is that he's kind of admitting that there is a part of him that wishes he wasn't there, and that he maybe regrets his actions. And there's, he says, even though he regrets it, it's too late to change anything, and he's just stuck there. So there is a part of him that doesn't want to be there. Probably regrets killing all those little Jedi kids. <laughs> and his wife. <laughs> and everyone else. <laughs> God damn it, Anakin. You are the chosen one! I hate you! <laughs> you were meant to destroy the dark side and not join it! From my side, the Jedi are evil! <laughs> I have the high ground! We're getting way too carried away with this. Alright, let's get back. Episode 6. Come right. on, lock in, lock in. We're in, the, we're in the end. And the Emperor, we find out his plan really all along was he wanted Luke to come here because he wanted to now turn Luke into his new apprentice. And he wanted Luke to see the visions of him fighting Vader and wanted Luke to kill Vader because as soon as Luke decides that he's had enough of the Emperor's talk and he goes to attack the Emperor with his lightsaber... Vader stops him with his red saber, and there's this great shot of the Emperor's face, and he's like, oh, yeah, let's Here go. Here we go. He's Here got the go. smile on. Because he wants Luke to kill Vader, because, like I said, there can only be two, and he's gonna, he wants to create Luke as his new apprentice. Exactly, and Luke is actually dealing with two battles, so he's physically battling Darth Vader in the lightsaber fight, but then he's mentally battling wits with the Emperor, who's trying to break down Luke mentally and emotionally. Because again, the Emperor, like you said earlier, is pulling all these strings. It's not Vader, it's the Emperor. Earlier in the film when Luke reveals, when Luke learns that Leia is his sister, Obi-Wan tells him that he has to hide this because if the Emperor finds out, he'll use it against him. And then this ends up happening in the scene where Vader and so Vader reads Luke's thoughts and discovers that there is a, a daughter and Vader threatens to turn her to the dark side instead of Luke. And this infuriates Luke and drives so much anger within him and then he carries out this onslaught of attacks on Darth Vader and this anger fuels him so much and actually gives him so much power where he ends up defeating Vader and chopping his hand off this time. And then now Luke has him. He beat Vader, and he's he's on the floor. And it looks like he's very close to, to laying down that final strike with his saber. But he stops himself. Yeah, so Luke throws his saber away because Luke is not going to succumb to the dark side. He's not going to kill his father. He's not going to commit patricide. He'd rather they kill him. And so the Emperor... Like I said, there can only be two, so the Emperor just has to kill Luke. 
is going to keep Vader as his apprentice. And so he does the crazy Darth li- dark lightning on Luke, and he's being cooked. And at <laughs> he's this, being cooked. basically, he's like smoking. <laughs> and um, at this moment, Luke is calling out for his father. He's asking him to help him. And Vader, for the first time, in his probably in his entire life, finally feels what it's like to be a father because he's watching his son, his own blood, being tortured and in pain. And which, if you ever talk to any parent, is the most unbearable feeling you can have when your child is in pain or discomfort. And so Vader steps in, he lifts up the Emperor, and just tosses him down that goddamn shaft where he explodes. Yeah, great ending. With all that dark energy. Yeah, and so Vader, Anakin Skywalker, did end up fulfilling the prophecy that was uh, spoken about him, that he would destroy the Emperor and bring peace to the Republic. Yeah, but with that, he sacrificed his life because while he lifted up the Emperor with all the dark lightning and everything and the energy, it basically fried Vader's robot and his suit and what kept him alive and his life support. Yeah, you can no longer breathe anymore. And we have the very emotional scene where Vader finally wants to remove his helmet. He asks Luke to remove his helmet so that he can finally look at him with his own eyes. The design of of Darth Vader's real face is, is very jarring and pretty shocking at first and... It, I think they made it. They made his face incredibly pale, to make it seem like he was becoming more and more like the Emperor, and he looks like he's lost nearly all of his humanity by this point. But there's still goodness within him. And like I said at the beginning of this segment, the main theme of this film is redemption, and basically any character is worth any character can be redeemed and Vader redeems himself in this act. Yeah, and he, and he thanks Luke for for being he says you were right about me. Tell tell Leia you were right about me. And at the same time the rebels on Endor the moon turn the tables on their captors and with the help of the Ewoks they destroy the shield generator protecting the Death Star. Then they fuck that Death Star up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they blow up the, the other Death Star. <laughs> Kill another 300,000 innocent people. Well, no, it's like 125,000 okay, okay, because it's yeah. not complete yeah, yet. Yeah, you know, yeah, They don't right. have full staff. Half capacity. So like half those janitors on Tatooine haven't come to work yet. Okay, gotcha. You're right. And then uh, Luke has a ceremonial burning of, of, of Anakin Skywalker's body. We have this great celebration with the Ewoks and the crew and the Rebel forces. And we get the, the new... Jedi ghost of Anakin Skywalker and he's not burned up or anything he's back to what he probably would have been if he never got corrupted by the dark side and it's Anakin from the prequels so originally it was the uh, the original actor who played Darth Vader in that scene where his mask was removed they had his ghost in the scene right here Lucas put in Hayden Christensen um, as Anakin right here in this scene as a, a, a force ghost and I actually agree with this because a lot of people were like put like it doesn't make sense because he died when he was older, but if you think about it, the, the last time he was Anakin was when Hayden Christensen was playing him. When he was last a Jedi. Yeah, when he was last a Jedi, when he was last Anakin Skywalker because he became Darth Vader. And I think this is a terrific conclusion to the franchise, to the trilogy. Yeah, man, the original trilogy is the best trilogy. It has two, if not three, of the best movies in the Star Wars franchise. Um, Return of the Jedi... Again, it's it's much, like I said, it's a lot spectacle. Also, a great conclusion. 
fantastic filmmaking. Special effects are absurdly good because they got pretty much double the budget they're working with here. George Lucas, what can we say? More than the fact that the guy's a genius. Created the most successful film series ever and probably that will ever exist. And there's a reason why these movies were made in the late 70s and 80s. We're still talking about it in 2020. You can still go to any toy store and find Luke Skywalker action figures. You can turn on the movies anytime. Anyone can quote the movies. Anyone can pick out a favorite character. Even if they haven't seen the movies, they know the characters. They know the story. They know who Darth Vader is. They know who Luke Skywalker is. There's a reason for all that, and this is one of the most iconic stories ever told. Yeah, and they're so powerful, and they resonate so much with audiences that Disney is still trying to turn out as many as they can. And they still do make a lot of money, but still they haven't been able to capture the same magic that these ones had. And these three will always stand the test of time, and they'll go down as one of the greatest stories ever told in cinema. The Imperial March, which is Darth Vader's like iconic theme, was not written until Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, and it's not—it's not even in A New Hope, which is a massive common misconception. That's insane. The uh, famous scene where Darth Vader reveals to Luke that he's his father. Mark Hamill didn't even know what the scene was about. They kept it secret from even him, and he didn't know his lines until right before they were going to shoot the scene. That's it for episode 35 of Raiders of the Lost podcast, Star Wars, the Skywalker Saga, episodes 4, 5, and 6. We really hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we did. This was a lot of fun to do. I'm sure we'll do the other trilogies at some point. I know we did everything wrong with The Force Awakens. We'll give that one its own thing, but we really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in, listening wherever you're listening, in your car, at home, watching on YouTube. Thanks so much. If you're not a supporter of us, Go follow us on our podcast streaming apps. Check us out on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. Support us on Patreon if you want. The links are, the links are all in the bio. You can find us. Just search us everywhere. You can find us anywhere. Yeah, we love you guys. Thank you so much for watching and tuning in. Take care. Bye. May the force be with you.